Welcome to another sudden episode, as they always are, of the Four Horsemen. This time, we're talking about the LCS Players Association, a body many of you may not know exists because it spent a long time doing absolutely nothing and getting funded by Riot. But now, I hear that's changing, and they have exciting new things to announce today, including selling the naming, uh, image, and likenesses of the LCS players under a new group uh, collective bargaining agreement. And joining us is the head, kind of, he says, kind of. Uh, group rights Philip, agreement. Group He's, rights yeah. agreement. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. That's why we're doing this show, to get into yes. it. My question, <laughs> is everyone else just cool with how surreal it is that they've picked as a head person for a fucking League of Legends player association <laughs> someone whose surname is Aram? Is this a fucking joke? <laughs> is this like that shit where Richard saw it, where like Nintendo's fucking CEO is called Bowser? Like, what's going on here, boys? What is this? Well, is, this we told fucking, him, is this a skit or something? That might be we told him he had to change um, his name to Naram, Naram. Right, there you go. When he actually became the head of the LCS Players Association but he has yet to legally change it, unfortunately. I'm, I'm sorry, but I can confirm that we do live in a simulation, so... <laughs> Eventually, that probably will be a battle that this player association will have to undertake with Riot, which is that they'll have to demand that it's always possible to 5v5 in mid lane, otherwise Riot's ableist against NA. So, there you go. It's all just breaking the ice. Just warm up material. It's all good. All right. Uh, so first off, let's talk about, I think we, before we talk about what happened today, I think we have to talk about what happened when you took over the LCS Players Association and the number of new people who have joined the board and the new leadership structure and what your goals were when you came in to do this. Because you came from Evil Geniuses was your last job. So correct. what was that transition and why are you here and what are you doing? Yeah, so... Spent six years at Evil Geniuses, uh, worked in liberal politics before, and was in early games media. Okay, ESFI World, if you remember that um, long-lost NA outlet once upon a time. So that was kind I of my, <laughs> my first gig. Yeah. Um, so did, it's, did that. It's, you know, it's now being joined in the media outlet graveyard by Upcomer. So... There was actually <laughs> a volunteer for that exact website who was at an event with me. This is how long ago it was, 10 years ago. He turned to me and he was like, just a volunteer in Eastwood. You're just begun. And he told me how I should quit working as the editor in chief of SK Gaming. Spoiler, that website still uh -huh. exists. And he goes, because I, we've got this like million, we've got all these millionaire investors in the SFI. So you want to get in early with us now and join over. And I was like, you know what? I'll let you take this one. Uh, see how that goes. <laughs> I don't know I if we ever had. Oh, well, there you go. I don't know if we ever had an, if they ever had investors. I didn't make a dime doing that. That's but the problem. I imagine the investor time. never came along. I imagine it was just a pipe dream or something. You know, there's always someone talking about funding these sites, you know. Yeah. But Monty, I think your question was how I got here, where I'm going, like what what sort of changed in my arrival uh, at EG for six years, left in large part because I wanted to get back to working on ecosystem work. I didn't want to work at you know an individual team level I like a lot of my late work there was on things like the louvre agreement and um and working on lcs stuff and, and committees and things so yeah, i was looking at developer work or maybe going back to politics and i uh, had a friend in the industry point this job out to me sometime in february i think long after it had been posted and say like hey take a look at it spend some time talking with darshan and you know we got into a kind of a long um courting process to figure out like if this made sense and what it worked what, how it worked. I was super skeptical out of the gate, to be honest, because I'd been on the owner's side. I, you know, I got EG back into the LCS and, you know, had heard everything about every, everyone's opinions of the, of the PA at the time. And it's, you know, ineffectual nature and, and it hadn't, you know, done anything of note or of service to, to anybody really. So I, you know, I had that very strong sense. I also understood that it was, you know, that it 
was funded by Riot and like how could this possibly be an independent and like effective arm for players if it's being funded by the publisher? No matter how we, good intentions we wondered might that be. for a long time. Yeah. We wondered that yeah. for a long time how that was actually when it was announced that it was being created. It was very weird and a conflict of interest yeah. that that was happening for sure. An inherent conflict, and I think you know I was not there at that time, but I think I look back at it, it was clearly born out of the fact that they were creating franchising, which was going to put enormous amount of power into a limited number of team owners. Players would now have very little agency about where they could go to pursue professional play, right? Like you can't just join a team that's going to win and like, you know, and promote up into the LCS in the future anymore. You have to be on one of these teams. They can set terms of, of engagement at, at the end of the day, unless you have a lot of power as a talented player. So, you know, those things were all very big questions for me. And, you know, when I learned that, yes, the funding relationship had ended from Riot at the, you know, in, I think, November, October of 2020. I started talking to Darshan in 2021, um, but they had funded for the next year. And so there was money in the bank and I could basically, if I came on, I could come on and that money has served as a runway to be able to figure out, well, how do we one, do work to to show that we actually can provide value, that we that like this thing makes sense, that it works for players, that players want like can figure out how to use it, how to like, how to achieve advocacy for themselves. Um, and then also be able to figure out how do you grow its power and make it sustainable so that it can exist beyond the end of this sort of like finite runway that we found ourselves with, which for me is a really exciting opportunity. Um, you know, we, as we talked to the pre-show a little bit about CSPPA and the fact that they started with this and with self-funding, you know, that's a big challenge because they had to go out and, and, you know, cart, somewhat cart before the horse have to create funding before they created value or create funding as value out of the gate, which is a really challenging thing to try and do, especially in this ecosystem. So, you know, we've been working on this behind the scenes for quite a while and taking a long time thinking about how we would approach um, becoming sustainable. Sustainability is required. Obviously, I can't keep doing the job if I don't have if I don't have a salary and we can't do things like collectively bargain unless we have money for lawyers. And we're going to need serious lawyers to do that because it's a serious project doing sports collective bargaining. So that was sort of the the roadmap that got me here and the reason why I, I chose this and I had a lot of people tell me when I took the job, like, you're crazy. Like, this is a dead end. It's good. You're like, you're like killing your career. Like, there's nothing that can be done with this thing. Um, yeah, like ge genuinely people who are like, I hope that you come out of this alive was like, you know, it was a sentiment. And I, you know, I and then you put the phone to Mark Merrill down. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah so it's uh you know, it's, it's been an interesting ride, but like, this is really exciting. And obviously like, it's been a really scary couple of days. Like, putting together something like this. I was on the team side when the CSPPA stuff happened and like experienced it from that perspective. And so, you know, I knew that there was a lot in front of us to make sure we like communicated well, understood, like educated people on how this works, its integralness to the system, the value it creates for players. And yeah, you know, we're still at the outset of it, but I appreciate you guys giving me time to talk and, you know, I welcome all your questions, especially Thorin, who sounds like he may have some skepticism about the, the value of players associations writ large. So I will say on the topic of the Riot one, where obviously they initially set up this player association, right? I actually, believe it or not, don't think that was an entirely like net negative premise because the problem goes like this. Yes, obviously, I'm very skeptical of what Riot will do. And I didn't imagine they would ever let that particular player association like cause like meaningful change they wouldn't 
didn't want effectively. Maybe if it was within line, aligned with what they already thought was like reasonable, they would allow it. But the reason why in the short term, I actually think it was had some value as a premise is because I don't believe the poor players, and I know this from CSGO especially, they would never have done this on their own. Like, first of all, as you can see, trying to get a pro player to even pay the dues to pay for what will then effectively yeah. benefit him and even potentially make him more money is like trying to get blood out of a stone, mate. You can't do it. You just can't, Somehow you cannot get it through to their brain because the premise goes, because it doesn't yet already exist and do that, they can't see the value of Fochi. So in the short term, I actually think I the, there was potentially a good reason as to why Riot did it because when, we, when me and Monty worked with Flashpoint, a lot of people might not know this. We had a dispute publicly with the CSPPA, right? But what people don't know is Flashpoint actually wanted the CSPPA to partner with us because what we wanted them to do effectively was take over the task of herding cats, which is getting pro players to agree to one thing and then do it. Whereas the premise in the past was players might individually agree to something. You give them the money, the reward, the contract, the but then they don't keep their end up. So the actual premise from companies in esports was we actually want uh, essentially like adults we can interface with who can then make it deal look obviously there could be some compromise but then on your end you go to the players and you're all united around someone and then you agree to do the thing so i agree with the premise of it my problem with it in league of legends was like i say i think it had a fairly limited scope just by the nature of who who created it who funded it and the connections with riot very fair i agree <laughs> but you're have... also confused by the way even in the press release here which i get it it's always going to be this way, right? Why in the press release though? Because one thing I was confused by is in your intro, I agreed with a lot of it. I actually thought it was very ineffectual as a union. A lot of the stories, even of things they said they'd done when I sort of read the news, I was like, what really have they actually accomplished here? Like, haven't they just sort of like officially agreed something with Riot or something? Like, has anything come of this? One thing I was confused by is in the article, the Medium post, it sort of like builds it as like, you know, we've done these things with it and now it's going to move to this great new place. I'm actually confused, mate. Like, can you tell me for real, before your time, what did this, the LCSPA actually do? Do they actually yeah. do? Is there anything sort of tangible you can you can point back to? Yeah, I would say if there's one tangible thing that has value above all else that the PA did before my tenure, and this was all credit to Hal, who who is you know who came from the NBPA as associate counsel and has been somebody I worked with. He's been very kind in, in giving me time and counsel um, post his tenure as just the most recent guy who was the leader, the commissioner, whatever. Yeah, correct. And right. yeah, he comes from he comes from being a lawyer at the NBPA and you know the the thing he did that was most powerful above all was he looked at the way that teams talk to players about contracts historically and say you can't tell anybody what's in this contract you can't tell you can't tell another player you can't tell anything which is you know in for decades in esports has been the status quo people player yeah. players being told that you're violating your confidentiality if you share this information and I said that's not the law the law actually says federal and state that every employee has a right a federally protected right to share information about their contract with fellow employees, with someone who would act to serve in their best interest for negotiating or um, or helping like get them better terms, like a lawyer, like an association or union. So he put together the player contract database, which and he had, you know, he put together legal memos around that to help dispel any myths that might have occurred had he not done so about whether or not players could do it and was able to get players bought in and get support to be able to have people actually put their contracts in. We now have a database that's thriving. We keep a majority of player contracts in there at all times, across all positions. We do our job every year to collect and bring in bring in that information that helps to pool information for players so they can see what's being signed across the aisle from another player. It's a huge act of collect, collective effort from players, and it is meaningful. Like When that got introduced, you saw a really significant gains in player compensation as well as in, in player terms. Now, I think that's the one thing that's been really 
that's been really successful that I've had to carry on. I think there is a lot of places where the association wasn't organizing players, educating players at the level that any sort of like self-respecting PA or union should be doing to make sure that their rank and file understand what's going on and are helping to um, like bring up issues and act from what players want to need. So that's, you know, before my time, that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing. And that in and of itself is the biggest thing any group has done for players in esports. period, in my opinion. Like that thing has enormous power. And I say it here in the hopes that someone from CS, I mean, I've talked with CSPPA folks about doing it and people in Overwatch and anywhere else do the same thing. Like people should be sharing their contract information with each other. Like look at your rights, like do that. Um, you know, I, I came in here in part because I've seen how team contracts change because of the LCS and how that spread across the industry. And I hope that our work here, both in there, doing the group rights that we're doing now will help to similarly improve conditions as other groups of players in other games, see what can be done. So yes, that thing, I'll point to that one big important thing as something that was done. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I also uh, <clears throat> wanted to sort of talk about that a little bit because one of the things I was super curious about uh, and sort of how this might affect things moving forward. Like, I think we all know that NA uh, League sort of operates under the purview of a cartel of, uh, you know, team owners that are essentially, to a certain degree, in cahoots with Riot. uh, Richard doesn't mean literally the 10 teams. He means the the big teams that sort of uh, colloquially have a little sort of group, maybe. Yeah, and everybody knows who they are. I don't even need to speak their names or anything like that and upset them. Um, But, you know, what we found in the past, for example, is that when, like, new orgs have tried to come into the space... They have basically colluded with Riot to fuck them over. They have uh, benefited from disproportionate favor from Riot. They've been able to get away with things that they've then simultaneously reported other teams for doing. Um, and when it comes to the sal- all these triggers, you listen off it, but keep yeah, going. Yeah, when 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 it when it comes <laughs> to uh, salaries. You know, I, I, my understanding is that the player association set up this database. Anybody can sort of dip in, look at who's yeah, yeah. making what, and that's players obviously big contracts can see. It's a you have to participate to play. Is how right, it, is right. How okay, so which, which is yeah, which is absolutely fair. Uh, that's how it should be. Um, but uh, you know, my, my my question, I guess, to you would be, if if that disproportionately powerful group within the League of Legends ecosystem agrees to, oh, I don't know, for example, like salary fixing, where they all have an agreement that they will not go above a certain amount for any player under any circumstances, even though they're ostensibly in competition with each other, how can a player association tackle that? Yeah, so the best tool that any organizing body can do is be a share of information, like knowing the facts of contracts and seeing information and how trend shift is going to be our number one, but also having relationships within like within the industry and ecosystem, both among other teams, among Riot. One of the things I did when I came in was really take an organizer's approach. I come from politics and like you have to have the contacts in the right places if you want to make change. If you just stand on a pedestal and yell and no one's there to hear or no one cares to listen, like it's not going to do anything. So I set up regular meetings with people across Riot on a regular basis. I meet bi-weekly with a bunch of different teams, LCS, Academy, we're in regular contact with their PR to make sure that whenever Riot's putting something forward, we're getting eyes on it first as much as we can to either get feedback or say like, hey, this is actually a problem for us. So there's a bunch of steps. I talk with Greeley on a regular basis. We'll be talking with Jackie on a regular basis. So like those elements are a really important step. And you know, we also are talking on a regular basis with people on the team side and our players, both we have reps at every team now who I communicate with on a regular basis about things and get information from like that 
information web is not something that gets built overnight. It takes time. It takes a lot of trust and buy-in from people to say, like, it's worth showing up to a meeting with you every two weeks because you're bringing something to the table. It's a value, right? Like those, mm -hmm. those things take work, take effort and are really core to what I worked on in that, in my first few months on the job and have worked to sustain and, and build on. Uh, so I think that when you talk about any concerns like that, where there might be people taking action that is like unethical towards players or taking advantage of players, you know, that's going to be the first and best way to act. You know, it's, it's just really hard to act when you don't have the information to know what's happening. Um, so that, again, we've also worked on taking lots of smaller projects. People might say issues for players on an individual level to try and make sure that, you know, if I can support one player, um, and an issue that they're having. One is my job, but two, you know, I'm hopeful that doing good by a player will help bring goodwill so that when another player asks, like, what do I do? They say, go to the PA. So, you know, that's like, it's sort of the, I guess someone described it as like the Ted Lasso approach, you know, like season one of Ted Lasso, whenever he's like, you know, he's fixing the shower head and things like you got to do some of the little work to, um, to build faith in a thing. And that's, that's what a lot of this has been. You know, I don't have any information about what you're describing, I'm not sure if it's like a, um, if it's an, an apocryphal story or tale, or if you're if you're reporting it as a, something you believe today. But if it was, I would investigate it. Definitely, it definitely went on in the past. I don't think it's That's a happening. fact now. I don't no, think no, it's no, a he, fact. He's now. just he's not meaning for sure. league. It's happening right now. He's meaning like since it has happened in the past in other games, mm. somebody sure. I have, argue, I have seen it in other spaces. Yeah, yeah, somebody even argued the entire Overwatch League is effectively this. So what the question is, you know, if it was yeah. happening in the future, says so what would you do? I have a, 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 a corollary question, which is along similar lines though the biggest area of i would say disappointment underwhelmment of the csppa in csgo has been that they have consistently shown on the things that actually are really important to players they will never down tools they have done it one time they boycotted one wow, match yeah. and it was actually for a very frivolous reason which was beyond what wasn't even proven and it, quite frankly now sounds like a campfire story meanwhile when there were real issues mate like a tournament organizer agreed, you know, we won't play past a certain time of day. They just let that be violated over and over again, even when they had a public agreement with this tournament organizer. And the problem was not only did the CSPPA seemingly never uh, uh, attempt to even unholster that main gun that you have, which is we won't, the players won't play and we'll sort of force you to the table. But the players, if you talked to them, didn't even have that as a concept, as something they could conceive of. They all sort of felt like, well, unless we're certain we can win the battle, then, you know, aren't we just like screwing our own careers? So to me, that's a real, a real bridge that like any association has to, they have to like, I have to understand where they're at on that one. Because to me, soft power is great. And the idea of having conversations of relationship is all great but eventually you can sometimes in really two stop is reach an impasse where one side has to force the other one to and if you're a player ultimately the only true leverage you have is to not give you give the person your labor to not play the game so sure. in in something scenario it doesn't have to be that exact case like can you give us your perspective so, on this what do you think of that also thorin to jump off of what you're saying too is that the reason why they were not boycotting events that were going on in the middle of the night by this one tournament organizer is that their model was predicated on being paid by tournament yeah. organizers and this was the tournament organizer that was paying the csppa whereas the one they boycotted was not paying the csppa so it became really like a protection racket and to this point this is a concern because it, previously when the C, when the lcspa was being paid by Riot, who is the, the the tournament organizer, then the players wouldn't necessarily want to boycott LCS in order to achieve their goals, right? Because that's where the funding is coming from. And the leadership wouldn't want to do that either. Yeah. A few things there to unpack. I think there's one side, which is straightforward your answer. I take no, I take nothing off the table. I, I come from 
progressive organizing and worked with many unions and labor. And I understand that every employee, not just players, players are employees, they're workers like you or me, their most fundamental power is the right to not work and the ability to withhold withhold their services. And you, you know, you if you were in my job and you said anything different, then that has to be on the table at all times. You would be absolutely incompetent. And so I'm not not going to be the first one to do it. So um, of course it is on the table. But I also say to the second point here, we have to walk before we can run. I can't ask players to, you know, put their heads on, you know, put their heads on the line when I haven't shown what we can do for them at a base level. And coming in, we had so much room to do collaborative work that can be positive for everybody on board before we need to get to anything that has to be contentious where we're in those fights. We also have the third point, a very different setup than CSGO, which makes a big difference. You know, in CSGO, you're the players are dealing directly with the team owners and the third-party developers who are, you know, working on things like Louvre Agreement, where they're already in, in, in cooperation, right? They have a, a real, they really have a, a two-party system there, which is more akin to typical labor organizing. We still, we have a very, very unique three-party system in League of Legends, where the developer takes an incredibly hands-on approach and has, at the end of the day, under current, under current, you know, setup, they have all the power in terms of deciding what happens and what doesn't. Um, because of that, you know both the players and the team owners are lobbyists in a sense to the developer about how to make changes and what policy should or shouldn't be in place. And so, you know, there's a slightly different dynamic than your traditional like two per two party system. We're not going directly against one of the group pull you know, tug of warring. We're both playing up to, to riot in many ways. And I think keeping that perspective in mind that they're in the same boat as we are, you know, when there's things leaked about, about pulling back, um, about pulling uh, team owners voting that they want to pull back the um, the import rules and things like that to bring all import teams. You know, I don't break a sweat because I know that every single piece of that like information, if a team if the team owners vote, it's no different than if the players vote. We you know we can have an advocacy stance, we can take you know measures to prove our you know our our will towards something. But at the end of the day, we're lobbying Riot. We're using the tools we have to to um, you know to make the case to Riot that something's in the best benefit of the league and of you know, in our case, the players especially. And I think that's been a big focus for us is, you know, that we have put out fires behind the scenes already where, you know, when we're talking with Riot, I'm very clear about, you know, hey, like if this thing, you know, we're talking ahead of time before something goes public. So that's a big change because historically, a lot of these groups, including ourselves, has been, have been caught after things happen and have to deal with attempting to respond or not responding at all to something that's happened to us. And so we've already changed a lot of things to where we're talking about something before it happens. Riot's asking us, well, what do your players think? Because they know we can actually get real information about where players stand on something. We can give feedback and say, hey, like we can't get on board with this thing as it stands. Like, please don't go forward publicly with it. We, you know, we would have to oppose this if it did happen. And can we find like something that's that fits for everyone? And or, you know, can you explain why you're doing this so that we can talk to our players and help educate if that is something that is actually like reasonable? So we've had a lot of conversations like that. And I've been very, you know. Greeley and I are very direct with each other. I don't know if you ever met Chris Greeley. He's from New Jersey. Yeah. He's a very straightforward guy. Um, and I like to try and be the same way. And so, you know, we'll, like, we have hard conversations. And so far, we've always been able to come to an understanding and find a, and find a middle ground. But, you know, everybody knows on, on both sides that that's not always necessarily going to be the case. And, you know, you can be respectful in opposition and also need to take, you know, need to take the stand that you have your conviction behind, which, again, to state clearly for you, Thorne, could include labor stoppage at some point in the future if that's where we felt like we had to go to protect something that was that important to us. So, you know, that those decisions come up to the players at the end of the day. I don't stop labor. They make those decisions if they ever want to. Um, and we are not a union yet. So there, you know, 
players or employees have a right to strike regardless of unionization. That's that's a fact. But unionization makes it a simpler um, a simpler um, thing to pull off. So we are doing a good job collaborating right now. We've worked on a lot of projects with Riot. There's a bunch of stuff that you know we haven't had to fight publicly. If you notice, there hasn't been as much like but stuff going on in the public that's been big backlash towards um, towards Riot and us in the last last eight, nine months than I would say happened in the past. And a part of that is because we've been working to try and get things that actually work for both sides, whether it be COVID protocols or whatever else the case may be. Um, and, you know, I think obviously the biggest collaborative effort that is in the public face for us now is the effort we put in to make champion skew happen. And that, you know, it's different than a traditional labor, like a labor dispute, but this is a huge quality of life thing for players, right? Put serious money behind it. We went to them, said, we need to create something that works here. Like it's a huge problem. And like we've talked to all of our players and we believe if you follow these four steps to deliver a real product that's accessible, that has real stakes for players and has support from you and has players in power to make decisions about how it works after it started, then you're going to be successful. And they followed through like four for four on that. It took longer to launch than we wanted to, but we were always talking about how about why it was not going to start on time, why we were waiting to make sure it was in a place where it could be successful. And now we have something in this space that we know players in other regions are like are dying for. Or like how why don't we have champions queue? How can we get this thing? This is amazing. You know, it's you know it's FPL, but it's developer funded and like and backed in a in a you know completely like in-house way. And like it's incredibly exciting. And I think for us it was a big win for players that we're able to say I didn't think it could ever happen. You know, I never believed something like this would actually happen. So and up to the days before it launched, they were like, you know, it sounds cool, but I'll wait until it actually happens because I've been burned before. So, you know, that's the work that we've done collaboratively. And yeah, this is something that's putting ourselves out there more. Group rights are something that, as everyone saw on CSPPA, CSPPA there was a ton of backlash there. And, um, I, you know, we can get into more about that or, or the yeah, how and why if you guys want to, but it's, you know, but our approach here is something that we know is, you know, it's going to take time to make sure everyone feels the same level of on board and work. And we hope we put in the legwork ahead of time to make sure that we can be successful there. No, those are good, definitely some things we should hit, by the way, later. Well, yeah, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, sure. I, was, I, know I went for an hour. No worries. Here's a here's a question. Um, so obviously with this new announcement, it sort of heavily implies that there is going to be, how should we say, like a more more effective, more pointed um you know kind of process for player issues in particularly around collective bargain bargaining and image rights compared to what there has been i'm just wondering if it that comes with a new set of stipulations because another thing that really kind of put us off kilter about the player association wasn't just its an initial funding by riot wasn't just that riot got to pick the guy i mean hal was recommended by riot games um, as uh, uh, Riot Games presented a shortlist of the Players Association. By the way, I don't just put that on Riot's doorstep. I think the players have got to be proactively fucking interested in who represents you, and clearly they weren't because you know they're generally a bunch of fucking overpaid, overprivileged, fucking lazy bums, especially in League of Legends. That's my experience. Um, <laughs> They'd vote to fucking end a whole split while still wanting to get paid. So if anyone's yeah. wondering if Richard's like being hyperbolic there, they did essentially expect not. to get paid while not working. So yes, absolutely. Just that out there, you know. I, 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 I take exception with these points, but please continue. No, no, no. <laughs> exception noted. Exception noted. Uh, thank you, thank you. That will be reflected in the record. But no, uh, <laughs> um, but, but obviously there have been a number of players that had like ownership stakes and um you know very strong tie shall we say to organizations and i think now if you want to be serious about getting the best deal for players i think such 
that essentially the players should have to make a choice. You can take the equity, but then you cannot represent players because by, you know, de facto, you're also representing an organization. Order, yeah. yeah, or you can represent the players in the association, but you must eschew any equity you have and, you know, it precludes you from taking any in future. I don't know if you agree yep. with that. Oh yeah, oh, we just, absolutely to, agree. To clarify, and... this is from Bjergsen owning yep. part of being a partial yep. equi- owner of TSM players while, yep. while was... being on the board of the CSP. Well, also half a dozen Cloud Nine players who took equity sure. as well at one point in time. There was that sure. as well. Yeah. So. Fair. Yep. We we totally we totally agree. I mean, but when we talked with Soren before he rejoined, we, we I, one of my first questions to him was about like you know what's the, what's the standing on that stuff? Are you st- like do you still have ownership? So you know we are all clear on that front, and it is important to us. You know I. Similarly, worked at EG. I had equity and evil geniuses when I left. Like after I when I left, I spent a lot of time talking with them, saying like, you know, like I like I cannot take on this job in good conscience if I have equity in a, in a team. So we made sure to like to clear that out and make sure that I had no no similar conflicts of interest. You know, you have to be like if you want to work with players, you have to take that approach and be you know and both as a player and as representation to have you know have your um, you know your allegiance is clear. On this topic, I, I applaud you, you for actually eliminating your conflict of interest, which is what nobody in this fucking industry does. So yeah. thank you for doing that. Yes. Right. When it says, I mean, it's even literally capitalized the word group rights. It's not even just in normal English, right? When you say that to a fan, that could mean it's such an open, vague topic, right? Basically, sure. my question, I would frame it like, again, I'll contrast it to the CSPPA. A major concern that people who were team owners had. Now, it wasn't the game dev you're battling or the tournament organizer. It's actually the team that the player in the association plays for. A major concern in 2020 with the CSPPA was that they didn't just imply it. They came out and openly claimed, this. they claimed this, that they had rights for the players that the teams didn't have and that the teams needed to negotiate with the CSPPA in some way to like obtain these rights now i can tell you every team org that i was speaking to within flashpoint they were like the one thing i can tell you right now is we absolutely have all of these people's likeness rights etc and effectively if you know the way team orgs currently work and the monitor the model effectively that's your whole model as a team org is to get the player rights from the player and then use those to sell to a sponsor all that stuff so at the moment my only issue is so i would say yeah of course But the problem goes like this. At the moment, nearly all the big teams we're talking about would lose their money paying these players to play the game. So my problem is this. In an ideal future where we're in a land of milk and honey and the streets are paved with gold and there's all this money and we're just figuring out where's it, you know, what's fair, who should have what share. That's great if the players get their likeness rights, of course. That would be ideal, like the NBA. One guy can be sponsored by Adidas, the other guy's sponsored by Nike, the team's sponsored by whoever, right? The problem obviously comes in the short term. I can tell you a lot of these team orgs, if they were in my seat, now would just tell you aren't you just going to basically bleed me more dry like like, like the, the rights you're trying to battle for like i won't have anything left at that point in time yes obviously that would be hyperbolic that's why i'm saying they would say that not me but i want to get your take on this because it's not as simple as you know a player should have his rights therefore let's do it tomorrow and you know the team org's evil if he wants to keep it at the moment it's kind of the main value he has yeah, I'm curious. What would you say? Because you're you're strawmanning for teams here in a sec in a sense by saying it's not what I would say, but this is what teams would say. What what is your what is your view exactly of that? Those te- I'm telling you exactly what those teams have told me yeah. and would say to you if they were sat in my seat right now. Sure, I- I'm curious where you stand in that interpretation from teams, though. 
Right. My problem is on an, a macro sense, like I say, as an ideal, as a principle. Yeah, I think it's fine that a player wants to secure his own rights. But I would say I think it's it's almost like immoral in the current landscape, essentially, to ask someone to pay you to do a job that you act as though makes them money, loses them money. And then you also say, oh, no, I want more. I don't want more. I want to own more within this. Like, I actually think that's immoral. I don't I don't personally take jobs where they put, I wouldn't join Opcomer, for example, and have them pay me an enormous salary knowing they will go broke in two years. I wouldn't do that personally, mate. But that's why I'm an unusual person. So I don't, that's why I didn't put my perspective forward. I want to get your take on this. Yeah, I'm not a player I, or a team box. So don't worry about me. Sure. I, I was curious because again, the, you know, I'm on my side of this, like the, the perspective you put out from team owners is, pat is patently inaccurate for how like these rights work and how, you know, we're collecting group rights. This is the same exact set of rights that are you that were the foundation for the first PA and first the first proper union in American sports. It's the 1960s baseball. They did a tops trading card deal using a group rights program that created the possibility for an actual union to form. They got rid of things like the reserve clause, where a team could hold a player in baseball for their entire career. They had a unilateral right in a player contract to keep them under that team for their entire career, which meant player salaries were dirt, player rights were dirt because you had no bargaining power. So group rights were the basis for that. And that baseball group rights deal that worked with trading cards was the foundation which every traditional sport PA has used to fund itself and create its ability to collectively bargain properly. So we are doing the exact same thing in the exact same categories. This is a group rights deal. It does not affect the player's individual ability to go and monetize. And it does not affect the team's ability to go out and do the vast majority of deals that they do. It also, our, our GLA has protections for all these teams' existing agreements. We're not coming in and claiming any rights that a team's already using or has. That is not happening. So anybody who says otherwise is is either lying or misinformed, number one. Mm. Um, and when we're talking group rights, we're talking, you know, the bit in the big categories of traditional sports hitting group rights are things like, and this is what one team will be doing for us and for players in the LCS and hopefully elsewhere, you know, frankly. They've done amazing work. If you Google, it's like the, you know, Google me like vibe, like Google yeah, them. Like, just in case people get confused. Yeah. One team is all one word. It's the name of the investment yes. group that's with it. Just yeah. so people don't get confused. by the, the sales, we'll, yeah. we'll, just, we'll discuss yeah. one team in a minute. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, the, the work that they will do is hitting the, the key categories of group rights. These are places, group rights are places where all, where, you know, effectively all players are of value to make something happen. Trading cards are the simplest example. A trading card of just five players, like a set of trading cards that's just five players, has no value. Like the whole point of trading cards is you're trying to collect them all like Pokemon or anything else, you know? You had the 100 original Pokemon and the only ones that were available were like, you know, I don't know, like Starmie and shit. Like it, it wouldn't do any, like no one would want to buy Pokemon cards. There'd be no value. You need the set. You need to have the highs and the lows. That's how it works. Those are the categories that group rights entail. In sports, you see trading cards, fantasy sports, like licensing to like license fantasy, like a fantasy sports provider, uh, like collectibles, things like, uh, oh, here's my blank. Um, um, it's slipping, but they're the spaces again. Video games, where, maybe? Yeah, like video that? games. That's what there I was going to Yeah, video games is a classic. You play Madden, and on the Madden cover, it says NFL PA approved. That is the yes. group license agreement between Madden or between EA and the players. And the way these deals go, when people especially say that teams are going to get bled dry, all parties, including the league, are making incredible money on these deals because the players who have their rights protected through the PA, and both through the group license, but also because that group license funds the PA to collectively bargain and protect their rights, though that those rights are, are negotiated between the PA and EA. And in 
And in parallel, EA is negotiating with the league and the teams as a construction of that league to also get the league marks and the team marks. So both sides are doing a deal and making money off of this thing. So the idea that what we're doing is pulling away you know, their money and we're, we're stripping them dry, we're not doing that. And if you also looked at the categories we just talked about, I don't remember a great trading card program out there in esports anywhere or in the LCS. So the money that I'm taking off the table for somebody is just not the case. We're trying to put something into the ecosystem of value, you know, trading cards, in my opinion, or digital collectibles, or, you know, any of these like possible properties, you know, Funko, Funko toys, or whatever else the case may be, they could provide a lot of interest to our fans and really build fandom. You know, trading cards are a big part of sports fandom, right? Yeah. But my, my, my yeah. question, my question would be though, is because Funko pops was, was in my mind. Cause I, I agree trading cards. Yeah. You absolutely want as many people as possible to give it value. You know, like you say, five, 10, cards in a set is fucking worthless right i mean because like everybody gets the complete set there's no trading aspect to it no one has better or worse cards you know top trumps that sort of shit the, the more the merrier i get that but let's say for example is there not a world is there not a realm of possibility where an organization negotiates a deal for everybody on their rosters not just league but you know across the board they're all going to get a funko pop made and then meanwhile the the players association has sort of maybe reached out to funko uh, and said listen we can do a deal and all the players on our books and then you'll all have the little bobbleheads for everybody in the league of legends group and then as a result funko break off talks with that organization and come to the deal that has more value and more product which would be the players association now i know that's like an insane sort of like rhetorical question and probably a crazy example but is that not is that not possible yeah is that not possible yeah i mean i I think you described the solution in your question though which is that the sum is greater than the parts in value but not to the individual org though surely oh i mean in i mean this i will not mince words this is a, a change in dynamics everyone will have to learn the differences in dynamics when a group writes agreements in place Teams in traditional sports, when their group rights agreements were in place, learned and had to adjust to the equilibrium over time as well. That'll be the case here. I, I don't question that at all. Like it, yes, something something is changing. Like that's you know that it, like headline like thing thing happens and everyone has to adapt. Like that's that's a reality um, to this and the program that we're building. But at the same time, I do believe fully that like the value that Funko Pops can create from doing all of the players and all the teams and having all the rights secured and also run through the process that Funko Pops is used to when they're working with one team already on deals, most likely in the NFL or the MLB or anywhere else. They're used to working with a player's association has the rights and a league who has the rights. Those deals are going to be able to do better scale for everybody involved, in my opinion. And, you know, mm. I, don't, like, I don't have data sheets in front of you. I can't prove it, but I like I you know I took economics in college as a business major. I think fundamentally like these you know these things ring true. And again, the categories that we're working that we're working within and prioritizing, especially are places that are not have not historically been been utilized effectively or at all. And we know one team is the best partner in the world at monetizing this for everybody involved. So you know I was at the right owners meeting yesterday met with owners directly face-to-face to talk to them about this and that we were going to announce this. And this was something we were going to work towards and have an honest conversation because I have a lot of respect for those people. I've been in the room with them. I've been on their side of the table for many years. And I understand that like there's a process to figuring out how we make this relationship work. And that I genuinely believe like I would, you know, you could put me on a lie detector. 
even though I'm not really sure those things work based on watching TV and movies, and say that like we're going to do good for them and we're going to create value. Again, if you look at the work one team has just done with Fanatics in the last year to re- to explode the trading card market and create new value for the leagues and players, like this is a true like opportunity for esports to find more sustainability, not just through collective bargaining, but through actual revenue that we can help bring to the table and be a real partner and not just be a drag on the system for some reason. I have a question for you, Phil, because I'm not sure how this works. Don't the teams get some money off of these agreements for video games or, or um, you know, trading cards because they use team IPs? Yep. At, like, that's, where the, that's the dual license part of this. So like I, like I described, there's a parallel negotiation going on at the same time for any of these deals where the league and the PA are both working in concert to some extent to figure out, okay, like, you know, we want to do our deal with this. In traditional sports, typically the PA signs first and signals the, you know, the party that's going to go, but those deals are baked in with revenue, with space for the league to also get a share of revenue. There's understanding of kind of who gets what in splits. It's not something I'm an expert on. I'm going to be perfectly honest about that. Like, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of very smart people who have a lot more experience in this than me um, to understand the dynamics, but that's a collaborative relationship that works because both sides are trying to get to the party and, and succeed. So that's, you know, that is how that works. The league absolutely gets a lot of money out of Madden, gets a lot of money out of trading cards. These are mutually beneficial relationships. Both sides are getting deals. It's not like we're taking all the, all the deal and no one else is getting something. We're making sure that the players are getting their share. I mean, I saw in contracts this off season, players, contracts suddenly having a clause in there that said you have you know we have a hundred percent we have, we own all of your individual and group rights to nfts in perpetuity and we have a hundred percent of the revenue goes to us everybody knows like you know nfts or anything else cash grabs whatever you may have or feelings about them there's a lot of money to be made there and the fact that a contract can in good conscience state that we're going to take a hundred percent of the revenue from this is, you know, is unconscionable to me. I don't, I, yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw them. And, you know, that's where like we have to do our job to make sure that players are protected and having the same rights afforded to them that you see in traditional sports. And a part of that is protecting their group license and protecting the group rights for them. And a part of that is using the funds from that, that go to fund the PA to make sure that we're doing good advocacy work. But and, I mean, well, yeah, moving towards to, 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 you know, what Thorne was alluding to earlier about the teams probably being nervous about this and putting these clauses in so that people actually understand the team economics right now, because it's really, I think, important to get that in order to understand why the teams might be reluctant uh, to have this these kind of agreements in place, even though, as I'm sure we'll discuss later, and as you alluded to with the the uh, Major League Baseball uh, trading card deal, it did in fact lead to an actual union later on down the road. And in this case, that might actually be beneficial to the owners because it could create a salary cap, which is something that owners probably want. Um, we'll talk about that later. But for the moment, you know, the, the owners are probably relatively, I would guess, kind of wary or adversarial yeah. to this occurring because the problem with esports guys and in terms of monetization is because the way that traditional sports teams monetize. So in traditional sports, the, the teams actually own the leagues. So they are able to have perfect transparency into all of the income streams coming in. They're also able to do things like sell media rights, which is not possible because 
Twitch has a monopoly and literally will not refuses to pay for esports media rights because they got burned on things like the Overwatch League deal, like big, big time burned, like hundred million dollars burned. So they're not going to do that anymore. And until there's a reasonable competitor to Twitch out there, those media rights are not going to exist. And that's the primary income stream of traditional sports. Now, the other thing that's happening... I'm sure they actually did get burned. They sort of handed Bobby Kotek a gold-plated flamethrower and then said, just do whatever you're going to do with it. And they went, oh, fuck, just burn the place down. Oh, Never do that again to anyone, not my friends. (laughs) This is true. Um, Yes, it's true. Um, But the other thing is that now we have alternate, you know, income streams within esports. So, for example, uh, it's a market... Esports is a marketing engine for the game of League of Legends. Like, that's what LCS is. Now, if I'm the NFL, if more people play football, well, certainly more people might watch football if they're invested in the sport. I might get a, you know, better uh, pipeline of of future players, but I'm not making money necessarily from every football that's sold. Now, some of them have like the NFL logo on it, so they're probably making some money, but it's not the same as Bjergsen uses a skin on street on the, in the LCS, people go buy said skin. And the problem is, is that there is no transparency with the team owners about how much money, like how many people are buying a zillion skin after Bjergsen plays that zillion skin. Do the owners get any of that revenue? No, they don't. They don't even know what that revenue is. They don't know uh, how effective the marketing is. Riot has data that says this user who watches the stream on lolysports.com, who is logged in, spends X number of dollars per year compared to the average user. Like they have ways of quantifying the money that is being generated through marketing that is not shared and the information nor the money is shared with these partner teams. So the teams themselves are the ones left holding the bag and the teams are in a very bad place in comparison to developers, tournament operators, and players. They are in the worst spot currently because their income streams are so severely restricted. And so why they may be not super thrilled with this is because it feels like... Because they're being squeezed from both sides is their vibe. That's what they feel like. Yes, exactly. And, you know, we can argue whether or not that's true, but I think it's a fair assessment of a team's perspective in the current landscape. Um, and I think in the long run, you know, if this goes into union, full unionization, if this goes into salary cap, it could be a good thing for the teams and frankly, for the players as well, which we'll discuss later. Um, but like, do you under, like, does that make sense in terms of, I mean, you've been on the team side. Is that a fair assessment of, of what's going on within this space? Yeah. I mean, I think when we had conversations internally about talking to teams and understanding how this would work and how it would work with teams, like, you know, Marty and I were both team owners, Marty being my contemporary at, at one team who was sort of our, our primary on, on the deal from their side. Um, you know, he was the co-founder of Splice and Mad Lions and, and worked there for a long time. And like, we're both keenly aware of the economics from team owners. And we understand that like, you know, you know, when you walk into a room and you tell them we're going to do a group rights program, the first initial, you know, response is going to be a threat response for sure. Absolutely. It's going to be, whoa, is this like, is this going to affect my bottom line? Uh, I, again, have laid out the case for why we don't think that's the case and why we believe we're actually going to generate value that's additive to the pool here. And we also do believe, yeah, through like, you know, we cannot survive. Like, If you take one thing away from this session or someone who's watching or listening, the PA cannot exist without group rights. It's the only viable path that's been shown in the history of North American sports to fund a successful players association. It is just, it's just a fact, you, you know, show me players associations that are successful and operating and unionizing that aren't using a group rights model. And 
you know, I'll give you a hundred dollar bill. I got someone, I'll find somewhere. There's gotta be cash somewhere in the world. But and, um, and the reason, by the way, the reason why this is important, Phil, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. to talk about why the monetization of the group rights is important is because the vast majority of sponsorships go to just a few star athletes, which makes it very difficult for these organizations to be paid for, or indeed for these organizations to uh, have the money to fight legal battles for the rights of kind of the average or the average player, which is we just saw in America, the Major League Baseball negotiations, which helped to increase the floor of how much like the lowest paid players are paid. Yep, um, and that's also what the the players associations do. And part of their funding goes to helping these players and paying these players who may not have massive, you know, Nike deals. Right. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it's a it's a humbling thing to see in traditional sports that players like LeBron James and Tom Brady, they don't just join their group license agreement. They're also the first person signed on, you know, with their name on the masthead that says, like, we stand with the rest because they're in the trenches with the rest of the players and they might be a superstar, but they know that their left tackle or that backup, you know, like the, the long snapper is someone who's equally important to the success of the team at some level. Like you need all those people to, uh, to make a team. And they, you know, they join because they understand that. Yeah, you know, they may have a lot of individual bargaining power, but you can't do it without everybody and you need to raise you you know you, you need to do your part to raise the sales. So, that's a big part of our job is to make sure that all of our players are bought in as well. And yeah, it, it's a huge part. I think historically in traditional sports, you can count on one hand the number of um, players who have ever opted out of a, of a GLA or threatened to. I think Michael Jordan talked about it in the 90s for a couple of years but didn't do it. And the only other one I really think of that actually happened was Barry Bonds. In the early 2000s, if you played an MLB game for a couple of years there, it was just like Giants. I forget Barry Bonds' number, but forgive me. But, you know, he, it was just his number. It didn't have Barry Bonds in there because he wasn't a part of the group license. That's, I think it did that's happen once in the NBA, though. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure there was like a game or something. It didn't, it didn't have one of the stars. I can't remember. It might even be NBA Jam or something. I can't remember. There Don't was recall, one, I think there was. It's it's a it's a but it's incredibly narrow yeah, list historically. And yes. it's, not, it's, it's something where everybody understands the importance of participating yes. because that that collective power as within any space when you collectivize when you put your rights together both in collective bargaining or in group rights or anything else you're creating more value more ability to bargain and that raises the sales for people i mean yes. again when you know when baseball unionized not only did they get rid of the reserve clause but yeah players who are on the bottom went from making like getting i mean it was at esports style contracts in the old days you know you got like you got a house to live in with 10 other guys and you got like enough money for food on the weekends you know that, that was like and you had to work in the summers like that was how it was if you were playing baseball and you were like a bottom player for you know 50 60 years prior to that so you know these things yeah do raise the bar for the for the the player at the bottom that's you know that's always how unionization and and collective bargaining or in, any sort of collective work happens like the people who have the or most vulnerable get the most protection and the most support out of this and it you know it's a huge and humbling again experience to have people who have a lot of individual power say yeah i'm going to put my name on this i'm going to support this and be a part of this thing so yeah it's big i would it's even say on. by the way i actually think in esports it should listen it won't be an easier sell to the player because players can somehow never conceive that they'll be worse than they are today. But when you consider what a short lifespan you have in terms of your career in esports, I think it's even more worth it for the superstar player because in League of Legends, in a year, you could be half as good. In two years, you could barely be in the league. So you might actually be that bottom feeder player who's the one who needs the help from the superstar in three years. It we don't have like the 20, 30 year careers you have in the big sport.
spots where you can sort of know as long as I don't get injured, maybe I'll be this good, you know. So I think actually in esports, you should even be more incentivized as a player to want to participate in group negotiation. I mean, yeah. even in traditional sports, like I read in the new baseball deal that the average, uh, you know, playtime in the major leagues for a player is only four years. So there, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's shorter than you would think. Even in baseball, you have to be have pretty good longevity even to play baseball for twenty years. It seems like that yeah, probably I mean, is a stat that's skewed though. That sounds like that fucking stat where they say you know everyone <laughs> used to die before age thirty, but they didn't. What happened was a bazillion people died at age like eight months or whatever, you know. And then, then <laughs> yeah. things, I'm imagine that's the guy who gets cut after the ten day contract. This yeah, I think yeah. I read something as well, like uh, you know about NFL uh, playing careers being like unbelievably short. Like the average was something like four point six, you know, years in total or something. Like a, yeah. you know, it, it is sure. it is it is crazy how short these things can be with that being said i did want to ask phil a, a, just a sort of quick question uh, again and that is down the road do you envision any issues with these image rights deals that are because we've had about 20 years of esports now mm -hmm. and i would say like the last 10 basically it's a shit show uh in terms of like the contracts that have been signed by players uh, the contracts that always come across my desk are you essentially sign away your image rights uh, for any purpose in perpetuity. Um, and, and in certain ones in North America now, this phrase comes in, which always cracks me up. They use anywhere in the known universe, I believe is the phraseology, uh, which, you know, just in case we like... Colonization is... Closer than we see. <laughs> yeah, just in case we encounter fucking interdimensional beings that have an interest in esports or whatever. But um, but yeah, so my, my question is, do you envision any issues? Because obviously... I, I feel that in any collective bargaining agreement, the value is obviously in the exclusivity that we can exclusively give you access to these image rights to use in your product. And then maybe a player retires and two years down the road, an org who still has the image rights in perpetuity to a famous player, maybe they go and do something with it. And does that in any, would that in any way devalue the project you're working on or cause any problems, do you think? Yeah. I mean, every group rights deal kind of, comes out of a place where they're butting up against an existing contractual situation where the rights are, are broadly held by another entity almost always. And the way that a group right still works and the way that ours will work is it has a clause in there. It strikes all existing contracts. And also if, you know, when you sign on to the deal, a big part of what you're signing on to is you're, you're basically saying in that deal, you're saying, you know, in the future, like when, if, when I'm able to, I'm going to be giving these specific rights to the group, to the group. I will not sign future deals that provide these rights elsewhere. So, you know, we, especially look at the LCS where contracts, you know, we have four-year contracts are available in very limited in very limited situations right now. But by and large, everyone's on a three-year contract or less. And mm. the way that a group rights deal will work in traditional sports or as here is that as time goes on and as players, if you know, if we get all of our players to sign on to the GLA, then as time goes on, there will be a ticking clock that will say that, you know, at the very least in three years, players will now have committed their rights to the GLA and they won't be available for them to sign into contracts. That's that's how this works in traditional sports. It's, you know, and the ticking clock is very much a, a real thing that you've seen. Baseball, again, there's some really great books on um, on one called Power Shift that, uh, that was written. That's I think, a really great breakdown on how baseball rights have developed and really explain, you know, if if we're going to be doing this in the future, that open, you know, that, you know, everyone will be able to know and signal for people that that's where the, that's where the rights will be available at a future date. If players commit to it, everyone has, you know, every player has a right to, to do that. They're not signing away any current rights or anything that they're giving to a team today, but they're, they'll be committing to being a part of this program in the future. If they're, if they're not available today, that's, that's how the kind of mechanics of something like this works. Um, and yeah, like it, you know, it is something that is putting a flag in the ground 
as as people as a as a group and saying like we're going to assert this collective right together you know that, that that can be very scary it was very scary for me like again it's hard to walk up a bunch in front of a bunch of owners and talk to them and say hey we're going to do this thing that establishes these rights for players and you know i would like to work with you immediately because we can bring real value to you right away but also like the way this is going to work is you know if we do our job successfully and our players believe in what we're doing and participate like we will have we will have these rights in time as has happened in every traditional sport in order to make them capable of existing from a players association standpoint so you know it's a hard conversation but honesty is the best policy they say most of the time so you know do your best Funny you come from Evil Geniuses because actually someone who was a key figure in Evil Geniuses over, I'd say about 15 years ago now, actually once told me that a player he had just signed, in doing so, he owned this player's likeness rights in perpetuity and and retroactively and that I had to send him all the POV demos I had from this player in his former team. And that, yeah, exactly. Don't worry though, even back then, I understood to just tell this guy to go fuck himself, whether that was law or not. You know, I didn't actually technically know whether legally that was possible, but no, yeah. what I want to go now yeah go on yeah i'll say you can, you can write anything on paper you want but there's oh, a yeah. if it's unconscionable a judge can still throw yeah, it yeah. out so there's you know there's a no no he was definitely like i said it was a long time ago he was relying oh. on the idea i'd just go like shit better do what he says and it was never ever going to be contested in court because we should talk now uh, largely i think about the whole funding issue because as we pointed out mm. with the riot thing at the beginning this is a key concern and again contrasting it with the experience in csgo as monty points out essentially if you just look not at what they said but the actions that the csppa took essentially it you could say it's uncharitable, but I would say it's accurate. Essentially, it appears their business model goes like this. The only person who pays them is the tournament organizer. Obviously, that's different from Riot because there, there only is Riot in League of Legends. But, you know, the ESLs, Face It, if they were still around, all these different deals, Blast, you know, all the ones that are out there. Essentially, their model, as far as we can tell, was they go to those TOs and they tell them, we want to make an agreement with you. Now, this agreement can contain very simple things that like we don't play past 12 o'clock or it could contain any amount of things that players and TOs might want to agree upon as terms. And basically... Despite the fact to an outsider, they think, right, well, since they've made that agreement with that TO and that TO's paid them, they'll now hold that TO to doing those things. And the joke is, if you looked at how they acted, it was the exact opposite. Actually, what happened was, because you've paid, you're now actually the only TO that doesn't have to do with that stuff. But any of the TOs that didn't make a deal with us on that issue, we might publicly call you out. So unfortunately, it did start to smack of like, like it felt like a protection racket. It felt like essentially they only act when you pay them. That's essentially their only model to get paid. And the problem became like the players weren't funding it. Essentially, the only people funding it were the very people that this player association was supposed to sort of either interface with or sometimes standing against and, and sort of hold accountable. So that became a major concern to people as to like how with this funding model can it ever succeed? So in this particular case, it's do the players fund this association at all? Is it just this one team? How does the funding setup work for this? Yeah, so it's going to work exactly like it worked traditional sports. No traditional sports player pays dues. It's a, it, dues are a function of 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 your kind of traditional union setup. Players in sports have a, a different set of of circumstances, and group rights have been the the method and the proven successful method so you know if anybody says like players should be paying dues like you know honestly i'll be honest when i took this job because i'd been on the cspps cspa side i wasn't very well educated in some of these things when i came on i was like yeah we got to figure out how to create value so we can show players why they should pay dues and then i read a few books and spent some time on the job and talked to some really intelligent people who work in traditional sports and was like oh actually that's not that's not what people do the nfl players aren't paying dues they're doing a group rights program the pa is 
like is not just, you know, they're not just paying in, which they are paying in. If you're participating in group rights, you're agreeing to give some portion of the, that money that you decide is, you know, the, the PA votes yeah, right. on how the budget goes, right? So they're deciding what part of their, you know, of that money goes to fund their association, but the PA is also generating value. They're out there in the market with a business partner like one team who's going and creating on the rights. So that is, you know, that is the function. The, a player who gives us, you know, who commits their group rights to us is giving something of themselves to the PA to ensure its continued success. And there, let us not put any, you know, let's not men's words about this. Like, you know, we are all aware that there's a possibility for, for, you know, an owner who feels um, like threatened by this and who doesn't like see or understand this as, as I and our, and our, our groups believe and our players believe like is a case that this will be a benefit for everyone where, you know, there could be, there could be a, a group out there putting pressure on players not to sign or actively like warring against it. You know, that, that that's, a, that's a distinct possibility. Obviously we had conversations about that. It ha- occurred in the C in the C in CS space. So it, that's a, a real reality. And so, don't take lightly any player who puts their name, you know, their, you know, their pen to paper on, on a, a GLA. It's, you know, it's a serious decision. You're putting your foot forward in something that hasn't really existed, especially in your space ever. And you're going to be the first people to do it. Like that's, that's a scary thing to do. That's something that takes, that takes courage and takes actual like thought. And we're doing a really hard job to educate our players over the next couple of weeks about what this is, how it works, why it works. And we're doing it publicly ahead of time before we ask anyone to sign because we don't want there to be any question that we were trying to like pull one over on anybody about anything. We know that this is the right thing to do for our players. It's the right thing to do for the league and for the, the health of the LCS in the long term. And so that's why we're here. So I'm on the, that's why I'm on this podcast to talk with you. That's why we're excited to announce because we're really proud of this and you know, we're going to do the work to make sure players are on board. But at the end of the day, yes, they're putting their pen to paper, committing those, committing that those future rights to to make this thing possible and to buy into their own future. Let's talk about one team, which is the organization that you partnered with, which is an age. I don't know if agency is the right word agency that is owned by the NFL players association and the major league baseball players association. So obviously they have significant experience selling these kind of rights on behalf of these organizations. Right. So how did like, what is the advantage of going with these people when it comes to creating these group rights and what is their function going to be moving forward? Yeah. I would also add, they also represent the WNBA players. They also represent the MLS players. They also represent the women's national soccer team players. They also represent the women's professional soccer league players. And I believe they've been doing some work um, in conjunction with the NBA. They're, they're not official representative there. I'm not totally sure about, about that one. Maybe like, let's strike that one from the record. I can't confirm, but many, many of the major sports leagues work with one team in the United States or, and the sports players associations work with one team in the United States. They've only been around for two years, but like you said, they were a joint venture putting together the commercial arms of the NFL and the MLB players associations. All traditional player associations have a commercial arm that does these sales for them. One of the really important things for me is that I don't want to be doing sales work. I want to be doing advocacy work and meeting with players and helping them and supporting them. This is what one team does. They go out. They t- you know, my job is to make sure that we have a program in place that supports the players. And then I can step away and let one team do what they do for life, for players around the country um, and around the world. So that's, you know, that's their, um, you know, that's the, what 
they do and their breadth. And you know, for us, you know, I talked to other people who run, who do agency work and do sales work in the space, who you know may have potentially been a candidate for doing like group rights for us, like you know, someone who like more endemic. And we talked to them. We talked about one team, and they're like, "You'd be crazy not to work with one team." Like these people are obviously like they are the group, the sports group rights specialists. They do this for everybody, and they do it well. Like if you like, if they want to work with you, you should want to work with them back. And it was a slam dunk for us because they had people in Lauren and Marty who we know, like who are esports and industry veterans who have real experience and who are really committed and like understand our language and can be in there to support in making sure this isn't a non-endemic endemic marriage that doesn't work that we've seen before. And also they put so much resources from their top people into this project. Like it is incredibly humbling to have a guy like um, Eric, who is the president of the NFLPA for years and who you know was an NFL player for for over a decade and is enormous. He is six seven. I'm six four. He makes he dwarfs me and he knows it and it's really strange and something I don't experience very often. And like to put those people to put um, Tim, who's who's one of their their leaders, who was at the MLBPA. People who have put together group licenses, who have been on the battle lines of collective bargaining agreements in traditional sports for years, like in meetings with me every, you know, every day and every week about how we would do this and how we would serve players and how we would make sure that we were protecting players and making sure that we weren't going cart before the horse or anything like that. It's incredibly humbling. And like, they, like I can say, you know, without a doubt that they are just like, they're an impressive group. And they've done a lot of work for groups that are not just the, you know, the biggest groups, you know, they've done a lot of great work for the WNBA. They've done a lot of great work for the women's national team groups with smaller numbers of players in leagues with less viewership and less market share or like, you know, less market capacity than say the NFL or the MLB, which are, you know, it's these, you know, enormous, too big to fail sports almost. So, you know, we, we've seen them do work in spaces that are more niche that, you know, like us, obviously we all believe in esports and its potential and it's, and, and where it can be, but we also know that we're not the MLB or the NFL today. So knowing that they execute and do real partnerships and lots of really strong partnerships for all these different partners across a variety of different scales in sports. Yeah. It, it gave us a lot of faith and uh, I've it's, I, I think I said in my tweet, it was really humbling. And I, I genuinely say that like the people who have you know put into this, they care, like they care about players. They care about trying to do right by players and they want, they know that this how is how players get empowered. Um, and again, like how, who, you know, he, he they decided not to bring him on again right i'm hired because how because it, there was a decision not to work with Hal anymore right and he has been so generous with his time to talk to me to counsel me and to support us in helping to get the gla right to help figure out um just how the how this stuff works and like it's really humbling like those people are people with a lot of power and they're putting interest in something that um you know like he, he would have ever had every right to be like screw you guys i don't want to spend your time with you guys anymore and to have him you know, be like, actually, you know, this, I did, I did care about this and I wanted to see this happen and I'm happy to see you doing it. And how can I help? Like, I don't know. Um, it's big. And one team is no different. So. Yeah. I on think that topic, is- on that topic, let me push back a sec, Marty. Cause the problem is this, yeah, yeah. like these aren't like fucking like, they're not just like Jesus and his disciples. Like we must do the right thing. And we are, we'll reach down to the leper and bring him up because, you know, only we must associate with the poor and the needy. And they are the ones who need a, like, 
if this was a Pokemon, local Pokemon union, mate, they wouldn't give a flying fuck. So they aren't just doing it because they're lovely guys. I, sure, I assume at one point in time, either A, they want someone like you in another scene going, and we worked with the uh, League of Legends Player Association, and then the, see, you know, they're going to be doing that. So first of all, it's a minimum of that. And then secondly, I assume, do they get paid some sort of a fee? Do they get a percentage? Do they get some sort of, I don't know, yeah, how, how does it work? Sell- yeah, agency cool. selling so there's yeah there's there's a i mean obviously sure our contract relationship is as well right? something yeah. i can share on a call but yeah no, it's, no. it's a similar business you know, business arrangement to yeah. anything else they're they're a commercial be. group they do sales they get a they get a portion that's how it works yep simple enough. yes yeah, but well, there would be a, there would be any yeah oh, i, I think sure. it's important it's important to note that there would be an agency revolt re, you know involved in any case typical agency fees are like 10 15 percent um yep. just so people know uh, and the advantage I think probably to working with one team is it's easier for them to work with, uh, companies like fanatics as was alluded to earlier by Phil, uh, who are already used to dealing with one team to sell group collective rights in order to make commercial deals for things like yeah. trading cards in the future. Yes, so. people don't know fanatics is actually the word fanatics. It's the people who make the cards. Cause again, people are going to keep thinking you mean fanatic, the team of Fortune. Yeah. I yeah. suggest people get lost. Same as one team isn't talking about fanatics. Is that the fans of fanatics? A fanatic? Fanatic? <laughs> it just seems like a nightmare to say the sentence. Like, and one team have been working with fanatics to do it. It's like, <laughs> the esports fan is already gone. Like he doesn't even know where we are. He's just sort of here. There's definitely some who's on first with one team on occasion. So yes. I mean, terrible naming in the traditional sports space to name your uh, merchandise company fanatics and then your agency one team. That's just fucking awful branding. Anyway, they're doing great, which maybe proves that branding's not everything somehow. Yeah. But, um. uh, just a, just another sort of, uh, I guess, an observation, maybe a question. Um, it does seem, based on everything that you're saying and based on the press release that came out today, one team does seem to be principally concerned with the more kind of commercial aspects of things there's not a lot of talk about you know what role they would play uh in challenging you know bad conditions for players or maybe going head to head uh against riot on particular issues that players didn't agree with and i I suppose the, the observation part of it is it does seem to me that given there will be as as we no, you know, an agency kind of fee going into one team. Um, is, is there even a guarantee at all that they would fight those kind of battles if it meant that essentially it could bring down the whole commercial aspect of things and sour relationships necessary to the commercialization of what the players, uh, you know, image rights give you? Yeah. This was definitely a question if you were still, if you're still wondering. Um, there's some comment question concerns there. Definitely mm. a question, and it and a good one. It's not one team's job to fight like our battles. We're not appointing one team as the head of the PA. That's still my job. My job is advocacy. Right. Their job is sales. Like yeah, right. they, they do sales at the end of the day. They commercialize things, and you know it is important to note that a big part of player power is those collective rights. That's a huge component in traditional sports of how players organize their power and exert it because they have money. When you're a PA, if you go on strike in traditional sports. You know, they build up a war chest from those group rights that allows them to keep players, especially the lowest paid players, from having to take on a second job or, you know, cross the picket line because they're afraid they don't have any money. Like those are, mm-hmm. you know, real things. So what their their work does is important. It gives us backbone, it gives us power, it, it gives us real capacity in this space. That is that is the truth. It also, you know, gives me access 
I am one person. I came from the team side. I have a business degree. I worked in politics. I'm not a lawyer. I have not collectively bargained before. Like, you know, these are not my areas of expertise. And as we move towards those things, all I can do is surround myself with people who are smarter than me and mm. know how to advise and have been there before. And they have some of the smartest, most talented people from some of the best PAs in the world and in North America. Um, like at their disposal sure. and those people are you know i've been on the phone with those people and they are not you know they, they've they're happy to type conversations about like yeah like you know this thing leads to that thing leads to this thing like this might impact you in the future in this way like you know they're humans and they they do care about this stuff they come mm. later but just, like, to, they, just to jump in for a moment you know what what because the press release essentially says that the money because again like you said earlier and i know this from sure. you know having worked with unions that you get into murky territory if you have an association fee, um, because that's more typically, you know, the subscription model is more typically associated with unions, and these two things are very legally distinct in America. But you know, my my again, the reason I'm asking the question is, Team One are saying essentially that the money they generate from the commercialization of the players' image rights is what's essentially going to fund the player association as a whole. And so if that's the case, then one team's goals have a disproportionate amount of influence over the overall direction of the players association. W would you not agree? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that the, I mean, I think they're like, you know, their goals are, are, I think pretty straightforward. I don't think there's a, I don't think I have sort of any sense that there's something amiss there. Like their, you know, their job is, to support us in collecting these rights, which is really core to our business. Like that's obviously a top priority. They can't sell rights if we don't have the rights. Like, okay, we're aligned there. Like we both get that. If we don't get the rights, we don't exist in, in a year. Like, okay, that's like, okay, we're still aligned. We go past that. It's okay. Well, like now how can we make sure we do right by our players and make sure they're doing like their job is to do right by the players and going out and selling those rights. Once we have the rights in place through, through GLA, that's like active and, and prospering, like, you know, their job is to go out and, and sell. They're not, you know, they're, you know, their job, in part will probably be to help enforce, make sure that the rights are, are not being um, subverted in some way in, mm. in future, you know, like they go fight battles with, you know, like unlicensed people pushing product and things like that on behalf of players all the time. That'll certainly be a part of their job, but they're not going to be at the collective bargaining table directly or, you know, I'm not sure what else they would be asking for from us. You're, you're talking about the, their well, priorities uh, or influence. I think I'm struggling with sort of, yeah. I can, I can present a hypothetical for you. So let's say, uh, for example, uh, one team go out. They're doing a great job. Uh, you know, they've got fucking trading cards, NFTs, Funko Pops, the whole shebang. It's all on the table. But then Riot Games, being Riot Games, one of the most repellent companies in gaming history, uh, do something that's repellent because, you know, why wouldn't they, right? They've got a history of it. And let's say the players acknowledge it as being repellent and they say, fuck it. It's so repellent, we're going to go on strike. Well, one team are going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. If there's no fucking games, all these deals are going to get cancelled. We can't sell a product for a tournament that isn't being played and doesn't exist. This impasse would really... Yeah, there'll be no PA after that. Right, and, and so there's one hypothetical I could conceive of where maybe one team, because of them having essentially this disproportionate amount of influence in the player association as a whole, might want to nudge players away from acting in their own best interests to secure commercial interests, which, yes, will benefit the players, but also do benefit one team. Do you follow baseball at all? 
Uh, I've I've read extent. I'm obviously a limey, so um, but I, I I've read extensively the history of baseball because I, I I think all the things we're doing in esports, there's so many like analogies and parallels. It's fascinating. Sure. So I have a yeah. I would say I have a ballpark, no pun intended, kind yeah. of understanding of it. There's a lockout in baseball ended yesterday. Hooray for baseball fans everywhere. Mm. Um, and all three of them are thrilled. <laughs> um, as, a, as, a, as a new partner with one team we can say no bad things about baseball um there's there's my limitations but uh the uh you know, they were still selling baseball cards while that strike was going on they were still working on partnerships you know the like a labor dispute is you know the commercial people you know the sales guys at the nfl and the, the at the nfl and the sales guys at one team who are doing their parallel deals they're all in the same boat. They're still trying to go and, and make their sales goals and, and do their thing while the labor side people, me and the people who I would be negotiating with are working on their side. So, you know, the baseball cards are still on the shelves. Those commercial partnerships are still moving along. And, you know, even as there's a labor dispute, you know, the heart of a dispute is trying to figure out what the right balance is. But at the end of the day, people want to get back to work and, and keep doing the thing that makes them the living and, and you know, is what their passion is. So, you know, then that, that hypothetical has been lived out this week for us and we i would expect no difference for for how that relationship would go um for us versus for the mlb in a situation like that mm. one thing i would like to ask about is one area obviously where esports is very different from traditional sports is that riot games isn't just in this case the person organizing the tournament like the nfl organizes the nfl they're obviously the game dev and if you know about intellectual property rights for digital properties they essentially are far more like overarching than anything in the real world like everyone knows the example no one owns the concept of football itself you can have the nfl brand of course which has all the history and to a fan may be football but it effectively isn't like we can start another league we can do all sorts of things right yep, since riot, USFL. yeah sure since riot does obviously have this extra level of power right i'm not i haven't got like a set question i'm essentially going to ask like how do you approach that because some of what you're essentially going to do if it was say player concerns that was specifically about the game like people think maybe it was too arbitrary the way i was punished some sort of competitive ruling or maybe it was too harsh the actual punishment given or maybe players think i don't know you should be allowed to trash talk in the game and that shouldn't be a punch whatever these issues they might push back on in your case you're effectively in some of these scenarios aren't you effectively just hoping the best you can sort of do is maybe coerce them slash get them on your side and hope they agree with you. They have sort of power that you don't have in other sports, right? Yes. Three-party system. Absolutely. It's a very strange, um, a very strange thing. And especially someone who, you know, I'm learning on the job in some ways, there's a part of this that is figuring out how do you learn the job in a job that doesn't have a precedent? You know, like I can read all the baseball books I want. I can read all the football books I want. Uh, and at the end of the day, they are not dealing with a developer who yeah, makes the game and owns, owns the thing itself. So, you know, it's one of the things as we talk about, you know, you'll notice we're not saying like we're unionizing tomorrow, uh, you know, getting enough funding to be able to collectively bargain and, and have the finances to do something like that is a huge first step to be able to get there. But, you know, we also have to get the buy-in from the players to, you know, vote and, and support unionization, which is, you know, an education process and talking with them genuinely about, you know, what are the, what are the positives or negatives, you know, are the, the potential of a salary cap is it outweighed by having more rights and free agency and more ability to like control your, your intellectual property. Like, you know, there's a million questions that have to be answered along those ways that we have to get to. This is the first big step, but the other and much more monumental hurdle is, you know, collective bargaining in the United States is a two-party design system. They didn't build this thing in the laws for three groups to work in it. And we cannot collectively bargain as a player association with teams if 
after we make a decision about, well, okay, players can go, you know, have their own individual, like, you know, liquor deals or something. And then we go, or they can, you know, have a gambling sponsor or something. And then we collectively bargain that. And then we go back and the developer says, actually, you can't do that. And it undercuts our collective bargaining, right? So the only way collective bargaining works in esports is for us to find a pathway for the, you know, they talk about bargaining units. So the teams in the NFL form a bargaining unit that is the league that serves as a single entity to bargaining. So even those 30 teams signing contracts, when they negotiate, they negotiate as one unit and agree to the outcomes of collective bargaining as a one unit that they will all honor. So, you know, in our, in our view, and we've communicated this with Riot already, is that, you know, we're very interested in this, but we have to figure out a way for the teams in Riot to form a single unit so that we can bargain collectively. And that's, you know, that's a big thing to, to work through and to, and to take that step. And there is no real legal precedent for this. It's un, you know, it's a untent or untrod ground in, in many ways. I think that's why a lot of people are excited from, from the player side. I think a lot of um, legal folks are interested in like, what does this look like? How does it work? It's groundbreaking. It's, it's interesting. And, you know, it, it would fundamentally change the dynamics for how, for how esports works if we were to do it. And, you know, I can tell you clearly right now, I do not have a good answer to how we get there. I'm not a legal expert. We've been talking with people, but there's, you know, there's a bunch of questions and some a lot of uncertainty. And when your lawyers are uncertain about what the law is on stuff like this, then you know you're really like, you know, in new in new territory. So that's the one we got to work through. That's how we have, you know, as we work towards something like collective bargaining, how the developer fits into it. That's you know, open questions that have to be solved that we're talking with all stakeholders about. Because again, I think there's a lot of people, including Riot, including it team owners who think that collective bargaining is something that would benefit um, benefit the league as a whole. And yeah, figuring out how we can do it properly is number is you know really number one on the list for projects aside from this. I think we have to talk about the collective bargaining aspect of this now, if that's the path that this is going towards, because it's for for those of you who don't know right now, the the PA, the Players Association is not a union under American law. And one of the reasons why it's not a union, and I actually talked to Hal Biagas, the former head of the LCSPA on the Essential Esports show that I did with Cloud9, if you guys want to go back and look at that um, for a comparison. But basically what happens in America is that there cannot be a salary cap on the league unless there is a singular union or body to negotiate against, because otherwise it's a monopoly of the owners slash riot. Um dictating what the prices of labor for the players is, basically. Um, and the reason why there hasn't been a push towards unionization is that this is actually, I think, at least it has been true up to this point, that it's not in the best interest of the players, because as you can see in the LCS, having uncapped salaries basically results in star players getting paid way more than they probably would be getting paid or allows them to collect onto a team like Team Liquid that has a bunch that's spending far more money than other teams um, so that they can have they can play together, basically a bunch of what would be broken up among multiple teams if there was a salary cap or players would just be getting paid less for the opportunity to play on a better team, right? As is the case in, in many traditional sports. So why, why suddenly does it sound like you guys are, are kind of opening the, the pathway towards unionization when previously it has been argued that it is, is not necessarily in the player's best interest in order to approach this? Yeah, I think that there's certainly some, I think, misunderstanding about collective bargaining how it works and also you know there's often i think in esports a rush to um to align like traditional sports many ways i mean many player contracts 
have or have currently or have had in the past issues that would not pass antitrust um, muster because again, unless you have collective bargaining, you know, traditional sports, the thing that allow restrictions on player movement on, you know, fixed contracts that you have to join a draft, those sorts of things are all components of collective bargaining. Um, right. That's very, why we can't have a draft, yeah. by the way, guys. Exactly. Well. Can you actually give very... an example of something that have been in real esports contracts that technically, you know, they shouldn't have put in there. It was a bit naughty. Can you give it like a hypothetical? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that there's, you know, like broad question around what sort of what sort of restrictions on going to play for other teams that a, a team can put in. If you're not in right. collective bargaining um, and you haven't collectively bargained, you know, that a player must play under, you know, Ben Simmons is on a five-year contract. He cannot give two weeks notice. You know, a lot of states have right to work laws that say you can give, you know, two weeks notice on an employer, right? Like, you know, there's like, open questions and act, like many active commonly held contracts in esports that you wonder, well, would that actually pass antitrust muster? We know there have been questions in the Washington League about phase if, uh, yeah, if you Fu. followed that case. Yeah. yeah. So so these restrictions are all things that have yet to be settled in 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 law or in court. There's been very little um, effort to, uh, to fight in those precedents. But you know, we get feedback constantly with Riot about rules and things where we say, hey, like, you know, we're not sure that this would pass the antitrust muster. We don't think that this like, you know, this is restrictive of an employee's right, you know, outside of collective bargaining. Like, you know, how could the, how could a team restrict this based on like labor law? So, you know, we're constantly asking and pushing those questions. And, you know, in traditional sports, again, like collective bargaining, what it does in any union set in any unionization setting in America is it bypasses antitrust laws. So when antitrust antitrust is the law of the land in the U.S., it keeps it keeps groups from being able to collude to fix prices or set salary limits or anything like that. Right? You can't do that. It's a fair open marketplace for employees to go and 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 seek their best opportunities. And there are many laws that govern and protect play, employees and your ability to leave a job if you don't want to work there and go work somewhere else. There's there's all sorts of stuff in the law about that. When you unionize, you are basically both parties are saying we're agreeing proactively that we're going to be bound by whatever rules we agree to play by, regardless of antitrust. So we're agreeing to this new set of parameters. So that is how you get a draft where the collectively bargained agreement says all new players who want to play in this league that has a union is are going to submit for a draft and agree to play wherever they are drafted to. Right? That's, that's a collectively bargained thing. You can't just do that in day-to-day life. You couldn't go, you know, you couldn't finish, school at an accounting school and just be drafted by PricewaterhouseCooper and have to go work there for three years. You know, you might feel that way. Is it it essentially because you're agreeing to do it, like explicitly this or someone on your behalf, this means that like it supersedes what would otherwise be the law? Exactly. So that is, yeah. So you're, you're going around and that's where the national labor, the NLRB, the national labor relations board gets involved to make sure that these parties are willfully agreeing to, to do this bypass effectively is how is kind of the, the layman of how something like that works. So there's, you know, there's a lot to be gained there that isn't just a salary cap in terms of a player, player value that a team might want, including things like, you know, putting together a draft or putting together player sectors for us on a player side, you know, it's setting a, you know, we currently, the only thing that really sets the salary floor in Academy is the fact that it's based in California, that we have people in California. And so the California minimum exempt salary is the law of the land on what a player can can be paid. Right. So, you know, like that, that's, that's sort of where that number comes from every year. We talk to Riot and say, okay, well, you know, they they bump the minimum wage and the minimum wage, you know, you factor that in it says, okay, $62,000 is the new minimum. So that's, that's how those things work today. It's really just working off of existing non uh, existing labor laws that are non um, they're, you know, just 
the law of the land from the state. So if we set a, um, if we go into collective bargaining, you know, then we have the power to say, Hey, like, we're not going to accept that, you know, that minimum, literally the least you can pay a person legally in California to do this kind of work. So we're, you know, we're going to ask for you to, to increase that number. That's going to be part of our bargaining and we're going to raise the floor. So maybe there's, maybe there's an overall cap somewhere, or maybe there's a luxury tax or various methods that are used in, in traditional sports to, to try and level the competitive playing field or, um, or like keep teams from spending well beyond their revenues, but there's also benefits. There's, there's gains in the floor. As we saw in this last off season, you know, you had a lot of talk about things like contract jails. Uh, you obviously had the perk situation that, um, that riots already addressed in how that will be handled in the future. But if we're collectively bargaining, we're never allowing those situations to come out in the first place, right? We're never gonna allow a third party team to control the fate of a player after they've already left, right? Like that's, those are things that we can do to protect players fundamentally re, you know, establishing, the lines for how IP is is split and how uh, you know what a team has a right to do or ask for player. You know, most player contracts today still say that a player is responsible to do whatever commercial res- like whatever you know commercial responsibilities a team asks of them that are within reason. You know, this is like anathema to a like typical talent contract. When you sign a, a contract to go work at Blast or something, you know every damn thing you're going to do, right? You're not showing up and just saying like, okay, I'm going to do whatever's reasonable, right? You you have oh, Like they can that. tell me, you know, take down the scaffold in and then afterwards pack these things on the butt. Yeah, of course they can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you have exa- you have exacting language about what's in there. You know, every player contract should have that. And it's really not the case today. Yes. A lot of them will have a few things laid out, but they still have a broad language that gives, you know, a lot of latitude for a team to just say, hey, yeah, I don't care. Like your off day is not written into this contract. I can have you, you know, come in and do content for us for eight hours because that's, you know, what we need you to do. So, you know, these are like serious gains for players. You know, we had teams who we talked to in my listening tour last year who said, you know, we haven't off- had an off day in seven weeks because we were doing content every day on the off day. Like, you know, these are things that you collectively bargain that put and improve players, right? Improve players' lives. And, you know, the balance of life can, you know, can be worth those those risks or trade-offs, but we don't know that there will be a salary cap. There's a real question, you know, I was on a team that had investment, that was investment backed. There are many teams in esports who will tell you, you know, out of one side of your mouth that esports is dying and they're burning money left and right. And on the other side are raising 50 million more dollars and pouring it into a team to try and win a championship. You know, if you're investment backed and your, you know, your goal behind the scenes amongst your investors is to spend money to try and be the best team in the world, even if it means you're losing because you want to be the Yankees in 20 years and be established, then, you know, Right. This is a different, fundamentally a different economic model. Yeah. There, there, yeah. yeah, there. It's also true that you know part of part of what's going on with the esports team, as you allude to, Phil, is that when we look at sports teams in America, which is where these LCS teams are based, these are often toys for billionaires. Their their valuation does mm-hmm. not reflect the income that they are actually making because there's a limited quantity of these things and they're fun for the ultra rich to own objectively. Yep. They, I would own an NFL team. If I had billions of dollars, that would be rad. Uh, but the the point is, is that the, when these people are building the business, they're trying to build a brand that is significant enough and prestigious enough to eventually justify being a very rich person's toy. Uh, that is that is like an exit. That's a legitimate exit strategy oh, in the long Absolutely. run for esports teams. So yes, I you know I agree with you, Phil. That they're you know they're playing a long game where they're like, I would like to be bought for a billion dollars in five years, and I will spend five million dollars on this player to accomplish to hopefully accomplish that goal, right? And that's what their investors are signing up for. So there is an element of that which makes it so the tears of the owners are not you know quite quite so sympathetic. Um, 
But what I will say is like on the, the on the salary cap subject, I actually think the salary cap would be a very good thing for the LCS overall for the following for the following reasons. Wait, I'm also seem- a former owner of an LCS team. Just want to say that. <laughs> well, I don't have <laughs> any. Be said. If you're going to make a statement like I believe so, I think that should be said. You know, it's sure, it's I currently do not have any ownership <laughs> okay. interest in this- any LCS. All right, Scrooge, go on then. Tell us why <laughs> we should never get paid anything. You need the Adam McKay like production pop-ups you know little chirons that just you know like tell the story beside us as we ramble on about all the things that we have conflicts on historically so i i think you have to look at the current issues with the lcs because we can't say that this is as healthy of a a league or a product as it was in 2016 viewership is down it's it's been uh you know pick uh, viewership has gone up you know in lec and many other leagues lck comparatively to the lcs it's not in rosy health as it were. Uh, and with this viewership decline, like we have to look at some of the the problems that have been said, like obviously like the production has been an issue historically, although I do think that's improved this year. Uh, the quality of teams in international play is obviously, uh, you know, a topic of, of much conversation. Um, you know, having North American players, I don't think that's really a factor, but some people say it is. And I think what happens with the salary cap is that would you, get a worse team most likely because players would not be willing to take pay cuts in order to play with each other on a team like team liquid right that's just that's just true but a problem with lcs is that the team's branding which is partially their own fault has been really terrible and i think the problem is is that these star players are so concentrated on certain rosters that there isn't an ability for teams to sign long-term deals for many of the lower lower tier teams to sign long-term deals. And for those people who are like, well, those teams wouldn't spend the money anyway. Uh, I think they would if they could reasonably like pay a star player and, and actually be able to build around them. The problem is that they don't even have access to get those star players to sign for money right now or to concoct a business model or marketing strategy for several years around one of those players' contracts, right? And so I think truly that a lot of the LCS games are pretty boring because there aren't storylines and there are not star players, established star players in these in these teams um, that could be solved by distributing star players across these I'll rosters. Give you an analogy, Monty. Everyone who's watching LEC will know exactly what I'm talking about. The player who is almost certainly going to win the MVP in the LEC this split is the player Vethior from Misfits, right? And Misfits is not considered the biggest org in LEC. They're not the most prestigious. They haven't won the championships. In fact, this was a, a player that they picked up. It wasn't even like that. he was the most like uh, sought-after player when he came into the LEC. They sort of picked him up as sort of a gamble, and it's paid off. He's not only become good, like I said, he's the best player in the whole league. The problem they have in Misfits, though, is at the end of this year, his contract will run it? out, and almost certainly, it's not even... A, this is the key... This is why I'm using this analogy. It's not that... Misfits can't pay him what Fnatic or G2 will pay him. The real reason he will go to a Fnatic or G2 is because they've got the other superstars and he will win the league. Whereas in, if it was in a salary cap scenario like Monty's talking about, like the NBA, for example, if if in Fnatic and G2, they've already got a couple of superstars they don't want to get rid of and they're paying them an equivalent to a max deal, like an Aaron Rodgers type deal, then realistically, actually, Vethiel's incentivized to maybe stay in Misfits and they can actually build a whole thing around him. He could be a, he could be the face of Misfits for the next five years. Whereas the reality is probably he's gone at the end of yep. the season. So that would be an hey. example. I would give. And for those of you guys who are saying things like, well, that would just make NA more shit. 
Stop being fucking delusional. NA is never going to do anything at international competition, even with NA super teams, okay? And also, international competition isn't everything. If two-thirds of the games in LCS are games that nobody wants to watch, that's not good for the health of the league. I would rather have the star players broken up, have distinct team identities be built around these star players. Oh. So at least the domestic matches are more interesting, guys. Like, that's what yes. matters first and foremost. So... Not only that, so the salary cap, you can also do things such as reveal player salaries if you have a salary cap, which, by the way, if you want to attract American sports fans, being able to talk about things and speculate about, oh, they only have this much space left, like who's going to take this oh, deal sure. or how can they make it work? Here are the salaries on this team. That's content for you guys that's actually interesting. Number two, it allows you to have a draft and a draft is also something very interesting to sports fans. Like, imagine, you know, if Jojo Pian, you know, was this breakout star from the draft this year in LCS. It's a very compelling story. And by the way, guys, would also incentivize people to play more seriously in Academy for, for fans to watch Academy because your favorite player's new or your favorite team's new player that just got drafted is probably going to start their professional career in Academy, which is like, oh, well, I know this player has, you know, was drafted. Now they've got a three-year deal with this team. So I'm going to check them out and see if I can get hyped about this. It is so healthy for the overall scene, I think, in order to have a salary cap by breaking up the star players and by having every team at least have an ability to come back because you guys wonder why teams don't spend money in this space. It's because there's no hope for them to be competitive. So you have the only two options for most LCS teams are spend a fuck ton of money to try and be competitive for worlds or to spend as little money as possible yes. just to, you know, to stay in and not lose. But there's no hope. There's no, if I'm at the bottom at yes. the end of the year, I'm going to get first pick in the draft. It's the reason right? why Jensen doesn't play for CLG right now. If you don't get that premise for both parties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, all of these things are creating a, an unhealthy environment in LCS that is boring to watch. And, and what's the purpose of it? The purpose of the only thing we get out of this is false hope that an NA team might do well at MSI and worlds, which accounts for a very small percentage of the total games that they're going to play this year. I would rather have false hope is the Jenkum that every <laughs> NA fan has been hoffing for the last 20 years. Whether that may, it's, Two bulletins are back of the head out behind the woodshed. So, which right. do you want me? How do you want it? By the way, obvious, do you have any final point? I will just say after this, by the way, Philip, like that's an open-ended rant that you can interact with and interface with anybody. There's no like question. <laughs> yeah. at the end I wasn't going to interrupt. Yeah, don't worry. No, 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 sorry. I'm sorry to go on this yeah, point, yeah. but I, so, I think it's actually the, the salary cap thing is actually good. And I know that certain players may not be able to play on these ultra stacked rosters, but I don't think the star player salaries would necessarily go down dramatically. I just think they would be redistributed around the league and it would create a better, healthier system. It would also create just a better path to pro to have a draft because at least there's hope for people, right? It's like, it's so random right now, the way that things, uh, new NA talent is brought up within the scene. Yeah. There's a lot there. Um, again, at the point, many objections to the false hopes in NA and everything else. Uh, you know, uh, please, please note, um, Richard, if you can, again, for the record. Um, but I really the, believes in <laughs> NA teams. <laughs> you know, yeah, I definitely has to believe there's some hope unless he's the most cynical bastard ever. Like, I mean, like, I mean, we can put on my bias hat at EG. Like, I, you know, when I came to EG, we got to the LCS. Like, I've, I'm very proud of the strategy that they have executed on from a 
like competitive standpoint. The year one, we came in, we said we have to show that we're willing to spend. You know, the Chovy rumors were very real. Like we were, you know, ready to swing for the fences to yeah. prove that we wanted to compete because you have to tell players that you want to be a winner. And, you know, we also believed that we needed to develop talent because that was, you know, a proven method to be able in traditional sports to be able to build a sustainable model was to develop and find young talent and, and you know, and sign them to and sign them a contract, you know, where you see like the JoJo's of the world. So, you know, I applaud Andy and Greg, who's now over at CLG for the work that they did in building that roster. And they're not a top, you know, they have not been a top, you know, they've always outperformed their, um, their rank and sort of this in the salary side of things. And I think, you know, more teams can or should be doing that period in, in the general sense of things. And I think there's a lot of recriminations that are well earned by LCS operations who didn't think strategically about how to both build faith among players in order to build, you know, in order to get talent to come to you and also to think about how can you be long-term, long-term sustainable and, and build a you know program that can succeed. You don't have to have a salary cap to understand the economics of traditional sports and how teams like build and manage a revolving roster over a course of several years. Like that's, you know, those things are, are, are proven and manageable. And you have leagues like baseball where there's a, you know, where there's the lack of a hard salary cap that people work with all the time and, and build and, and develop. So you know, I, I'll leave I that there. Like, that, that NFL popularity, I think obviously who the fuck knows sure. there's too many factors but one of the things that i think has caused the nfl it's to ball, the ultimate become... sport where you have no hope if you spot yes. every team except Correct. like two or something mental like that. <laughs> every time someone wins the fucking i don't know baseball man, but every headline i hear is always like and it's been 74 years since they were lost i'm yep. like who the fuck is this team you know what so, i mean that's that's the it's point a very old that, sport that's all <laughs> one one of the things that's great about the nfl and one of the things that i think has caused it to rise to the, the you know the top popularity of any sport in America is the fact that legitimately small market teams can fucking win the NFL. The Cleveland or like the Cincinnati Bengals were in the fucking Super Bowl this year. Like that's, you know, you would expect these teams from New York and other big markets to potentially dominate and they don't like they don't. So part of what's exciting about the NFL is it feels like small market teams can be legitimately good with the, the right luck and the right drafting and the right team building uh because the salary cap exists yeah and as within any sport you're going to have like in traditional sports even with the salary cap you have teams and ownership groups you know the clippers under donald sterling are a great example like you know they had a salary cap in the nba it didn't matter because you had an owner in there who didn't know how to run the team and didn't want to do anything except for leech off of the system so you know you need good owners and i think from the pa side we absolutely want you know smart hardworking owners to be competitive and create parity. So a salary cap or not, if you're not running your team well, like you're not just going to, you know, if you don't know how to use your players and your talent, you might just, you know, get be drafting someone first overall and burning their career, you know, at, you know, before they even walk through the door. Right. So that like, you know, ownership being smart and well-run an important aspect of this. And, and we will, you know, with any system, we want all players to have an opportunity to feel like they can come into the league and be successful or sign with a team and be successful. Um, you know, it's a, not a part of the job that we really have a direct interaction with how teams like run their, run their businesses. But, you know, I agree with you on the structural side of things, regardless, you know, I'm not going to give you like, yes, we want a salary cap. That's obviously not going to be my position out of the, out of any gate. So like, <laughs> like that, that's not going to happen, but I do agree with you on the structural side. You would be side, bad at your job if you said that. <laughs> I would, if I said we would like a salary cap and we would also never go on strike like these, you know, I would be, uh, um, I would be probably prosecuted by someone pretty quickly. So that, but, but, I but do my agree point with you is, on like, the, 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 having, the structure and the health of the league and like the salary cap, guys, this, this product, the LCS is not on an upward tra trajectory. So 
things need to change in order for it to be sustainable in the long term, right? We can't just keep doing business this way because it's it's going down, guys, it's going down. Man. So I agree with you. That even when we came into the league on EG side, like we saw a lot of complacency. There is a, there had been a lot of complacency. I'm hopeful that people are, you know, more active and more invested. I'm on the team owner side. I talk with team owners, but you know, I'm not in their, in their meetings, but getting proactive about how to, you know, do what's best for the league and improve the league. That's where my focus is. You know, I put a lot of effort in champions queue because on my, when I was on the team side and when I've talked to players and when I talked to, you know, when I see the community react after every world's, you know, embarrassment, you know, one of the biggest things people talk about is like our players are in a substandard training environment. Like it, discourages good imports it, it it worsens imports when they get here it makes domestic players not develop how they should you know and so we addressed that and we worked you know to get progress on that like i'm going to take all the steps i can in my position supporting players to try and improve the condition of the league to try and improve that and a part of that frankly does come back to group group rights and the structures and incentives that we have to go out and commercialize players in a way that creates fandom like we talked about with trading cards like when you have not just being excited that Jojo's coming in as a rookie, but when you're involved in basketball or baseball trading cards and you know, you got a LeBron James rookie card and you know, that thing's worth money. You saw it gain. Then 10 years later, guess what you're going to care about? You're going to be trying to figure out which pick do I want to get that rookie card from? Because it's going to be worth something someday. And you're investing in again, the developmental space. You're watching the early players come through because you're excited. Like it's the same way as how sports gambling has come in and, you know, and you know, we know that sports betting is a huge part of traditional sports and the excitement. A lot of people associate like, the having a stake in the game in some way as a fan is important to a lot of people. And that can be as simple as a trading card. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of story and narrative to be said about that, to be said about other structural items. And I know that we can do more and should be doing more to help build player brands and build the next generation of player brands that really pushes the LCS back up to the top and really creates that excitement that, you know, was really palpable, you know, three or four years ago. And it should be, it should be insulated from world's performance. Like Monty's saying, like we should have a healthy league that is competitive and has exciting players. We know we have exciting players. We need to market them and create that excitement. So their domestic league can be everything it can be regardless of world's performance. And we also want to do well at worlds. And I'm going to say for the record, we can do well at worlds. And if we do, it's because my name is Aram. By the way, on the topic, obviously this can be for any of the leagues and associations you're aware of. It could be NFL, NBA, whatever. When they have the, do the players that play in the NFL, for example, are they actually allowed themselves to post footage of themselves, say on their Instagram? Do they have to have some sort of like, do the, does the NFL have to sign off? And how does that work? Do they have some share in like their likeness rights in the actual game for the footage? Again, I will head to the part that I'm not a, I'm not an expert, pure and simple on every piece of this. There, you know, there's a few pieces. There are a few sections of this though, that are like assumed rights or pieces that have been litigated in arbitration. For instance, like one question you talk about the the shakedown. I will not comment on any of that. I, I was not privy or, or experienced to it. And I have a good relationship with my contemporaries at the CSPPA today. And I, you know, I believe that they're out there trying to do their best today. Won't speak to anything in the past. But when you talk about a shakedown, to be fair, the shaker downer left, so sure. it might have changed. Oh, yeah. I'll, 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 <laughs> I, I, I stay away from it regardless. But to that point of the idea of a shakedown, you know, there is settled law through arbitration in traditional sports that I've gone through with our legal side about, well, 
what are the implied rights of participating in the league? You know, like we're not going to be able to shake down Riot and say, hey, we got the group rights. You can't broadcast a game because players oh, playing course. it. Yes. You know, there's those things are you know baked in through arbitration that have said, you know, if you are playing in the league, you are, you know, you are by proxy agreeing to participate in the inherent promotion and, and publishing Although, of, of league things. So there would be there would be a sense of justice if you did that though, because Riot can turn around and say you can't broadcast our intellectual property because they own the title. So, you know. Maybe it's kind maybe of what I'm fair on that one. <laughs> like, the reason I wondered why is because I, I think, like, look, I understand more sponsorship for athletes anywhere outside the game. It's not like LeBron's running around in the game with a big Nike. Like, it's just the shoes he wears in the game is like an implied sponsorship, right? But the the problem I see for esports people again is that in esports, the game the game dev is god in terms of the in the game. Like, if people don't know, Riot essentially it's actually one of the few things they do that I'd give them some credit for being magnanimous. They're not obliged to give us, for example, on this channel the, the rights to show footage from the game. They can absolutely copyright strike the video and it would be upheld by google slash youtube and that would be the end like the channel would get a strike so i just feel i wondered if it was that much different or if in sports for example like julio jones can't put like you know a video of himself if the nfl really wanted to be arseholes i don't know how does that work yeah i'm not an expert so it's hard it's hard for me to say but my understanding is there's there, there would be a you know a generally allowed permission to you know to use that in in personal right. use or especially anything that can be considered promotion of the league you know that's that's a big part of the collaborative work that's done it in traditional sports is that you know any you know you may be restricting group rights for players and commercial purposes but if it has to do with promoting the league and the well and like the health and the wellness and the popularity of the league like those those things are mutually agreed upon at every one of those leagues that everybody participates so right. you know i think you know to me that that speaks no differently but i i'm not an expert to that to that extent on that minutia Fair enough. Um, we do have. I I, I do want to take a question here that Papa Smithy asked because he's the, the GM. Right, how many how many grog coin does he own? Tell him if buy twenty five grog coin, you can ask any question you want. Listen, mate, your friends, you always patronize. You go, you don't go to your mate's bit restaurant and just go free in it. All you can eat now is like you fucking pay. So he's got one of the funny. I fucking I've made shot drop ten shit rip off Yeezy fucking jackets and say there's only ten in the world and they're all and selling an NFT. FT, if Papa Smithy wear one, there you go, you just made $10 million, you buy a fucking 25 grog coin. Okay, you ask him the question or whatever. We'll humor this one. Uh, we'll humor this one. Uh, how does Phil respond to the reality that there are players who would rather play for top academy teams than bottom LCS teams and everything that implies? Look, it's, not, it's not the CSPPS fault yeah. no one wants to play for fucking TSM, Monty. That's, if they want to play in a, an academy squad, a more competitive team with better practice conditions and good teammates, that's exactly their own right. Sorry, I, was, I got a bit lost there. You, you go I, I see the Thorin. Yeah, I see my time. Uh, go ahead. But uh, yeah, I... I think you ca you capture a lot of it quite well, and I think it dovetails back to what I brought up before, which is you know complacency or or different or teams not operating properly. You know, like we, you know, if as you know, if a player in the NBA buyout market would rather take the minimum salary to play for a team that has a roster that's contending for a championship than to sign with you know the Houston Rockets right now, like that is their prerogative, and that is you know that is a part of this wonderful capitalist free market economy we have, right? It's controlled through collective bargaining in these situations. But at the end of the day, like a player has agency to say that this team's providing more value for me or is creating something, and you know we're we have no you know if to us that's a matter of the teams need to address. If you are a team, if this situation's true, where a player would rather sign with someone's academy than play for your LCS team. Then you have a serious, you know, problem to be solving internally. How do we change our dynamics? You know, maybe you need to go do what we did at EG for a minute and, and make a Godfather offer to Chovy and make a bunch of people believe very quickly that we were willing to do what was necessary to compete. 
I don't know. But, you know, like when we came in, we had that same problem at EG of trying to figure out how do we make people believe that we are genuinely here to compete? How do we attract talent? How do we make them feel that we really are actually going to do things necessary? Like you have to have a player focus. And, you know, if any team, you know, like if any team wants to be successful, they have to ask those hard questions of themselves and, you know, try and figure out the solution for them. But again, that comes down to, to teams needing to, to do their jobs and, and provide value and be competitive. I would actually say, by the way, the Chauvy example of EG trying to sign Chauvy, and if people don't know, people like Cloud9 tried it as well, and Team Liquid have tried to get Faker, uh, you know, these big deals have been terrible. I would actually say that's a perfect example of why actually the work ahead of you is absolutely necessary for the NA slash LCS ecosystem, because you're in a bad state of affairs, because here's the problem. Fans might not know this. Chauvy didn't go to the LPL. Like, it's not like he was making so many bazillions. It was like, well, what's the difference between, you know, a millionaire and 1.5 and LCS? No, like, I've heard the amounts that were offered by some of these NA teams to some of these players could be like three times what they'd make in Korea so if the player's not even like truly ever considered because so far we haven't really had like a proper one of those players come over at their peak when they're the biggest name that implies we were, we were close something... genuinely okay. close that like, implies there's something wrong like, with the ecosystem though you know having like very like sweating brow conversations about like did we just fuck up because we might actually pull this off you know right. like conversations which <laughs> I agree with you like you know the money that would have been made for Chovy it's a it's a you know a remarkable amount. So yes. there's you know it's a it's an incredible swing to to go for any team sure. that does it. But um but yeah it's you know like that those are just you know those are realities. And again like back to the point of Rob Smithy you know every team needs to figure out what they can do to be competitive. You know some teams try very different methods. You know you have FlyQuest who are doing really well in the standings right now, and also they put a lot of work into differentiating themselves from a brand standpoint and really focusing on who they were, what their identity was from that standpoint, even above and beyond their competitive side. And like, you know, those things, like people showing thoughtfulness about how they operate, like, you know, that people are responsible with that. Like every team is doing something different and and working in a way to, to be successful. And if you're struggling to the point where you're not able to sign a player over an academy, another team's academy, like you really need to probably, you know, put some deep thought into how you can swing that around. I would also say, by the way, just for this specific example, because remember, it was a specific question, Monty. It wasn't just from the ether. It was Papa Smithy from 100 Thieves. All I would say is this, is I remember a guy who was playing for 100 Thieves. He was a starter. He was called Puma. And everyone was going fucking mental. You never could hear shut the fuck up for about two weeks while he was good. So once once the beginner's luck ran out, right, he went off and fucked off to another lower team. So I will just say, disclaimer, if you're one of the top teams that does really well in LCS, I have noticed they also run a sideline that goes like this. While I myself will be constantly abusing the import rules and trying to get green cards for imports and stack as many talents as possible, I think all the other teams in the league should really buy all this NA talent up that teams like mine and Cloud9 have raised up. I think really it's disgraceful that the top academy teams are ended up with them like my academy team and that these lower teams like CLG don't want to finish 10th but pay me for the honor of playing with that player who I definitely don't fucking want on my team, but please buy him. So there's, I'll just say like, look, I actually think Papa Smith, he's speaking, you know, he's got good intentions, but <laughs> I'm getting a bit sick of that from the big NA orgs. Their whole byline of like, well, everyone should really buy American. I'll be uh, getting an import myself, of course, but you, I've got one you could buy here. So look, look, it's fucking Parlor Fox. Wouldn't you like him? He's very good. But give me a break, mate. Come on. How about this, guys? You put your money where your mouth is and we'll see what you actually believe. <laughs> well, I think, I think also, Phil, like it's, it's important to discuss Discuss that the deck was stacked against certain LCS teams from being able to field competitive offers because there were there were clauses in the the LCS contracts that said that players couldn't get equity unless they had what been for three years with the team. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, there there were restrictions like that. We're very much disentangling equity as much as possible. So, but so, yes, that is yeah. But, those were things but, that were in play. But here's, hard here's the thing. Sure. 
let's say, but here, if you're a new team, so you're new at franchising, you come in and, and your evil geniuses, well, you can't have had a player for three years, so you can't offer equity. So how do you compete with teams that can? Like it was a, it was, it was, the deck was stacked against a lot of these franchises, franchise teams. That was a feature, not a bug, Monty. That was a feature, not a bug. Oh, I know. I know. But it, it's just so, <laughs> sure. like, you, I, I feel like chastising the teams is kind of oh, ridiculous. Of because, yeah, yeah, sure. you know, they couldn't they couldn't make the kind of long-term investments in players by giving them equity that many of the teams in the league could, which then helps you attract other players because you say, oh, we've got this guy on a three-year deal now. Because, and he, you know, we're building the team around him because he owns part of the company. So, all boats, you know, all boats rise if if he gets more popular, right? So there was a real fucking issue with being it for a lot of these teams with being able to do that in the first place. Any thoughts? <laughs> I, I, I thought I was. I, thought, I mean, I think it's well said, honestly. Like, I, I don't really have, you know, a, a take on that as as the equity side of things is already something that's being, you know being peeled back as I think people have realized very quickly when we came in, we got cloud nine players so who had equity deals. So. Should be ideally where do you want to push the line to ideally on that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm generally a believer that player equity I mean, as in traditional sports, like is something that is problematic at, at, at best. And, you know, there's a lot of education gap at the very least with players about how, especially in privately held companies, like what's your capacity to exit, you know, like the company's valued at this, you're getting this much equity, but like in a real market situation, how can you like that stuff is so like mystifying that to make sure that a player has proper education on it is would one be a burden for us to make sure we do it. But um, also again, brings into question of how can a player transfer from team to team? How can a yeah, player be a, like a genuine part of a bargaining unit if they also have a stake on the other side? Like, you know, the, I think it, it raises more issues than, um, than it solves. And if a player has value equal to something like that, why are you not presenting it in the form of a standard like contractual language and mon monetary value? Like that's, you know, that's the case we see. And, you know, you see in traditional sports when players retire, sometimes if they have a great relationship with an organization, like they go into management, they go into an ownership stake, like those things occur. And I think, you know, in my, my experience, that's the best way to, to handle it. And, you know, hope, hopefully, especially you speak to the problem, Monty, of how some teams enter the league at disadvantage you own a collective bargaining again many of the things that are solved in collective bargaining are setting a clear and a clear set of playing field rules for everybody involved including new entrants into into the game who are buying into slots or getting getting expansion slots or whatever the case may be so it's not just a benefit to players it's not just a salary cap benefit to teams setting rules of play setting clear expectations or benefits to everybody in any workplace i should put my general labor hat on like every workplace benefits from clearly defined expectations and and well understood rules where everybody has a voice at the table so yeah that's that one thing by the way i'll give you credit for is actually just appearing on the episode in itself like one of the problems we've had by the way in csgo is there are no shows like this with csppa like you never get interface between people who have questions or even just want to know what their real plans are beyond like you know business meetings and pr statements and so i would hope in the future as well it's the same with the commissioner of the lcs in general like in my opinion there's another area esports has to level up compared to sports like whatever you might think of the nfl Roger Miguel has to stand in front of that shower of shit of all the people criticizing him and asking him all the questions. And why did this player? Yes, they've had stuff that's something to do with him. Why did a player do this and that? I hope in esports we at least get people, at a minimum, at least take field the questions for fuck's sake. You know, how you answer them is up to you, of course. For sure, as coyly as possible um, most of the time. But I, <laughs> I, I, I genuinely do say, and I, I said this when I started, like, 
I want people to act like to, you know, to tweet at us when they want us to have an answer about something. And I want to be held accountable to respond. And I want people to tell me like, you missed the boat on this. You know, we're working on a one year in review sort of thing for a couple months from now to look at what we actually did, where we worked, where we made some mistakes. And like, for sure, one of the areas is like, you know, we improved on the PA's previous grade on how they were doing it communicating, but we still fell way short of the bar. We missed a couple boats. Um, we were late on a couple and like trying to be more accountable to public is the best thing we can do, especially because you know, like the, uh, many of our players get their best information through Twitter, through Reddit, through social media. So we're not just speaking to fans or to the public and being accountable there, we're being accountable to many of our members to make sure that they understand what's going on for themselves as well. So, you know, it, it, it's something that we know we have to keep doing more of and, you know, tweet at me anytime or message me or if you ever have something you want us to talk about. And, you know, like if I say no and like, I don't want to talk about it, you know, put out a tweet, screen cap me and say like, you know, this guy's being a punk and not like, you know, oh. not doing what he said. By the way, I also do think that's an area where pro players themselves do need education. They need to understand the function of the association. Because I tell you what, in CSGO, I get so sick of pro players. Sometimes, dude, even the people on the board of the CSPPA doing tweets like, why is this still going on? And you're like, that's literally a matter for the CSPPA. Why are you tweeting about it? Is my question. Like, shouldn't you? I hope you've at least gone to them with this matter. That's, you know, that's what they're going to do about it. For sure. We, we do a lot of work to try and build norms for players to come to us before they go to twitter you know we, we kind of like stack like the when you have an issue we're talking to amateur players we did amateur sessions as one of, one of our, our projects this year um to talk to players before they get an lcs contract um and one of the things is like when you have an issue like you should come to us first or your representative lawyer or agent or otherwise you know like one of these two bars and then like you know if those things aren't available or fail you like maybe then the league and then like you know you and then at the very bottom of this is like going public on social. Like this is, you know, an important tool for you to have in your arsenal as a, a person with a brand, but also it should be the last one you pull out and you should make sure that you've exhausted the others first. Mm. Like let us come do the work for you because again, if we can, you know, help solve the problem behind the scenes, it builds power for not just you, but for everybody. So, um, so yeah, that's a yeah, yeah. active, active yeah. effort to, to make sure. It, people we're going to echo that sentiment completely of the order as well. Cause I'll tell you yeah. one thing, I'll, I'll even use Richard as an example. People might be shocked by this, but there are many cases I know of where Richard had like information about something going on and he goes privately to the party and sometimes resolves it and it never ever has to come out. So a fan yeah. obviously only sees when we go public. So they might think that people like us just instantly go, go to the Twitter with everything. No, actually, usually it's exactly like you said, if we have to go to Twitter with it, that's probably, there is no behind the scenes movement on this issue. And now we effectively have to weaponize the public. That's the that's the last sort of tactic left. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, no, no. Go, go ahead, Phil. That's fine. Uh, I, I was just gonna say. There's a good example of this. You know, before my time, there was the Solo Fide situation. Uh, you know, an amateur org that wasn't paying players, and you know that ended up being a public spat. The players, you know, never got money. Everything kind of went out. You know, they they ran out of the scene and all that business. You know, we had players who after amateur sessions came to us because we said like, if you don't, aren't getting paid or if you have not signed a contract, but someone promised you like, tell us your players come to us and say, yeah, like I'm in a situation. It feels pretty, pretty spooky. You know, they said they're going to be a contract. They haven't actually done it. I was, I've been playing for them for six weeks and I haven't been paid. And you know, what we did was, you know, the public never saw any of this because we went to riot and we talked to our partners who I meet with regularly. And we said, Hey, like we want to flag this stuff. You know, these teams, can you go talk to those teams and, you know, get them to make sure that they do right by their players today. And, and like we had to get the result and we got that stuff resolved. So it never had to go public players never had to put themselves on the line. Every time a player says something publicly, they're damn it, They're potentially harming their potential to get a next job because players are constantly labeled malcontents and problems. If they, you know, speak, to, you know, speak to like issues that they're experiencing yeah. in public. So, you know, we got to protect players in a couple of ways in that situation. And yeah, it's all about 
communication, getting ahead of things, getting information before it becomes too big to to manage. So, yeah, and and I was going to ask because I, I, you know, there wasn't really an organic juncture to kind of fit this question in, and I know it's probably a tough one for you to answer based on what you've already kind of alluded to. But to what extent do you believe the CSPPA has been a failure? Because, you know, and the reason I ask that is certainly in its previous iteration, I can't speak for where it's at now, does seem to be mostly anonymous, if I'm being honest with you. But, um, you know, in, in, in the past, obviously me and Duncan publicly criticized it. Um, it cost me a, a friendship that I held in very high regard to do that. Um, because, you know, one of the Pers one of the people involved in creating it was sort of immensely proud of its sort of historic significance. So, but for me, I, you know, when I look at it, I, I think, first of all, they've engaged in a number of shady things direct directly back in the Mads Ulland, um era, you know, sort of running an agency stealth to the side and using information acquired through the union talks to run that agency um, to interfere with stuff kind of on an individual contractual basis rather than a collective basis sort of felt a bit out of pocket. And then on top of that, um, you know, they've been absent for a number of big issues. It's not just playing after midnight, which you might be able to make an argument about that's just going to happen in esports because esports is shit. Right, but like at the end of the day, they felt strongly enough to codify it. Yeah, yeah. So you then have to live by your own code. It is a historic, you know, moment yeah, and like really important. Exactly. They, they put all the importance. Behind and, it, yeah. And you know, if I look at their activity now, I mean, at one point they did have some of the most powerful players in NA in Europe as the representation on the board. Now I would say that caliber of player that's on the board. No disrespect to the players, it's less. They don't have as big brands. They're not yes. as powerful voices. Um, and you even have one example famously saying, hey, there was nothing we could do about ESL taking away player slots from NA orgs and from European orgs. They'd earned the slots. ESL just took them away and said, we're restructuring. Fuck you. And obviously that org, you know, that slot for that org had a lot of value. And, you know, the CSPPA said, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. And coincidentally, ESL are the ones that are paying the piper. So, I mean, for me, I think overall, I think it's been a big failure and it's really let down a lot of people compared to its early promise. Yeah, I think there's, I would say, first off, I have a great relationship with Michael, the the current, um, I think he's executive director. I'm not sure if that's his, if his title there, contemporary. We meet every couple of weeks, same as I've been doing everywhere else. I, you know, one of the first things I did was reach out to him and try and set up conversations. And, you know, I was... I didn't have a lot of information on this on the CSPPA aside from what as a team owner I experienced during their initial push for group rights and and the things that they've been doing um, at the time and so I've, I learned a lot. I talked with you know with Sir Scoots quite a bit about it as well, especially in my early days because coming to the job it would be silly of me not to talk to the other people who have done this thing, both you know, Hal on PA side and you know understand where everyone had experienced. I would say that my like my words of wisdom about the CSPPA is that I do not envy their job. Like I have a much easier job than they have in so many ways. And is why this job was really appealing to me. And I'm not afraid to say, I'm like happy to take the easier job um, because I like the pathways for us to succeed are much more straightforward. They mm -hmm. have one inherent problem, which is that they're dealing with players from many countries playing for teams from many countries around the world. We have everybody in the United States everyone in California to that matter as well. So we deal under not only just one country's set of laws, but also one state set of laws. That's an in, 
enormous advantage. And also like the, a finite number of teams as opposed yes. to all the players and teams constantly coming exactly. up in CS and it's a ever shifting yes. landscape. Very difficult. Yep. For sure. Yes, we have we have a fixed number of teams. Almost all of our players are like our English language. You know, always a number of imports, but like it's you know it's the breadth of CS is you know wide. It's like you said, there's new coming and going, and there's it's very hard. We also have a publisher who's very involved and clearly has some investment in the PA and its value and purpose. We've obviously talked about the conflicts and issues with that inherent at the outset, but there is an inherent advantage to one having an involved developer, a third party that we can work through. Like I said, we're more of a pyramid fighting up to lobby like with that developer, whereas they came into an immediately adversarial situation, like direct adversarial, where that it's you know them having to compete against the team owners directly. That's a much harder situation. They also came in with no money in the bank, you know, our money in the bank came with, you know, I wouldn't say it came with strings. I wasn't there before, but it came with questions, you know, and, and clear conflicts. And I came in with, you know, money in the bank that was now divide that was now devoid of those of those um, you know parameters. No future funding coming. No no ongoing relationship. It gave me a huge, you know, having a runway, having months to just do good work and just try and like do the best things we can for people without you know anything except for attempting to show that we can bring value, like. What a fucking privilege that is compared to the CSPPA who day one had to figure out how do we pay the people who are going to make this thing happen. You know, tackling group rights on day one when you've provided no clear value and, you, you, you know, you're you're battling uphill against teams that do have a lot of like inherent threat around where their revenues come from. It's so much more challenging. They had, you know, and, you know, they had challenges. And they had they had issues with the optics around how that stuff worked. I will say, you know, genuinely from the team side, I saw many conversations in the team owner circles that were, you know, pushing, you know, pushing narratives actively and trying to like submarine the work of the CSPPA, whatever conflicts they may have had were amplified by a very active and proactive group of owners who didn't want it to succeed like that. You know, sure. those things are, are, that that was, was anything are unfair about. Do you have anything? That was, that was difficult for us as well, by the way, because, you know, I recognize no team owners want a powerful player union. I mean, that goes without saying, right? So we, our critique of, the CSPPA was kind of tempered with that understanding that we could be carrying water for bad actors, essentially, you know? Sure. And, you know, there's, you know, I think to your question, Thorin, I think there's the conflation that quickly comes between, you know, between articulating a clear, a clear conflict of interest, like riot funding the PA, the idea that people who are running the PA and collecting the rights are also people benefiting financially from the rights as the, as the agents, you know, selling against them like that is an obvious, like apparent conflict out of the gate, but it's also, you know, a visible one. They conflated that then with, well, if what this is happening is, you know, is potentially, you know, like, look at this, like, look at this thing. Like we don't have you know proof that anything untoward is happening, even though it's obvious there's a conflict here. You know, we also like, let's then say that, well, you know, the nature of group rights and, t and collecting group rights is unethical in of itself. There were many, you know, posts when the group rights came out there, you know, there were, group rights agreement was basically a one-to-one -one of the NFL group rights agreement, most powerful sports league in North America. This is like the law of the land in this sport. And, you know, I'm seeing attacks against it, you know, at hominem as, as a component of, you know, this sort of, you know, tied in, 
you know tied adjacent to the um, you know to those conf- to the conflicts of the the group running the association that are driving at the idea that well if they're bad then this thing must be bad too and people are attacking the credibility of the group license when I'm looking at it I'm like this is you know like this is something that was vetted by some really like some people who make a lot more money than everybody having the conversation who have worked together and built something that's existed around this for dozens of years right so clearly like this document in and of itself is not unethical but you had you know people that getting that those kinds of plays getting credibility and you know this is where conflicts of interest are a problem right when i came in i didn't want to have a conflict of interest because when you create when you leave those things those doors open you create the possibility for your work to be questioned beyond the merits of what's actually being put out. It's why we're trying to be really transparent coming forward out of the face of this. We know there was backlash around CSPPA. We know we have to have a public conversation. We've signed zero players to a group rights agreement today. We're announcing the partnership. We're going to you know, be presenting the group rights agreement in the coming days, but we were really thoughtful of saying we're not going to sign people preemptively because we don't want anyone to perceive that we're attempting to do something behind closed doors or hidden. We want to have the public conversation because we know history and what is right is on our side here in terms of what, like how and why this should exist. And we're welcoming the public conversation to make sure that everyone, including our players feel good about what they're participating in. So that answers it. I skewed into pitching my own thing. I, I will admit, but I did say where I thought there was unfairness towards the CSPPA. So hopefully that is remembered too. I'm not very good at being. But do, oh, you, do, do, do you think overall it, it, it's kind of failed to hit its key goals is the question. Well, I think those things put them way behind the eight ball for sure. I don't know what their key goals are because I'm not in the room with them, but I know that Michael has worked to try and put together programs for mental health and otherwise that I think are like real positives. They may not be some of the things that you know people look to. You know, like, we get calls. I'm sure they get the same calls, like unionize, 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 right? Like the, you know, and obviously we have to do some education about. Well, it's maybe a little harder than it looks, but um, you know, the you know, the I see the same calls for like doing more for players, fighting for players' rights more, and so I look with a lot of empathy towards. Well, like if you get that far behind the eight ball and you're just trying to keep the lights on, like you know, how do you get? how do you get to a place where you can keep the lights on and get back to the advocacy work that you're supposed to be prioritizing? How do you disentangle from any conflicts or any, you know, past strategies to keep your lights on that weren't actually working or were putting you, you know, further behind your goals that, you know, are the the fundamental purpose of your PA. So yeah, I, again, I have a lot of empathy for them. I, I think that they would likely say that, you know, they wish that they could have done more and they wish that they maybe could have done things differently at the beginning to be more successful. And I have, again, also the privilege, which I missed, which is seeing what they did. I had an older sister who got yelled at by my parents and had a million fights and all that stuff, you know, and I got to sit four years younger and watch all that stuff play out and learn from it and try and do it better. So, you know, we're doing our best to, you know, to not take that for granted on our side, but yeah, um, I think it's hard going first and, you know, I give them props for doing it. And I, I, you know, I'm glad I wasn't the one that had to do it. I'll also say, even though I agree with Richard's premise, you certainly had to question, like, are we are we essentially like helping battle the players here when you criticise? Yeah, it was, it was yeah. tough. But the thing is, though, I think that that's like, like we, we were absolutely honest in what we knew. The problem here is only one side would speak to us, which was the team orgs. We, the players not only had no one to properly represent them, they were just sort of like, ah, oh, you'd have to talk to, I don't even know who or this person, or we can bring it up in a board meeting. And then, as I said, there was no front-facing person. There was no, like, community person who's trusted and we know we've you know we had conversations of dialogue who could come on shows like this and you could just put the, the matter to them and then they can give their side. Again, you, you don't have to agree. There's no, like, it's not like a fucking meeting where you have to, at the end, come to a conclusion but they essentially they didn't they i think they did themselves a disservice by not even 
basically the best way to describe a lot of the ill will towards CSPPF from the fans, not from the players or the team box, in my opinion, comes down to the way they framed that infamous uh, open letter that they did in 2020, where essentially the gist of it sounded like we don't have to do anything except the literal wording of this contract. Fuck you, payos. Like that ain't a great look, you know. Instead, what you would have wanted to do is again have some sort of community liaison person that's known that when they come into a conversation like this, they wouldn't be seen as a corporate figure who only cares. You know, they would then you could get into the ideas and the meat of the topics and what are they doing and what are the problems and and even some things you also like maybe there's disingenuous framing by the owners, you know. But I, from my perspective, they essentially just allowed a, a vacuum to exist because they wouldn't put themselves forwards. And yeah, plenty of people have filled that with information, which in your case, maybe it's misinformation, disinformation, whatever angle you want to take on it. Absolutely. And yeah, I think it's it's totally fair. I mean, getting how you communicate to the, the public and to your contemporaries, right, is it's fucking hard and we're trying to do a good job of it. We'll see how we do. You know, I've been talking to you guys for two and a half hours. I haven't looked at my Twitter. So, you know, maybe I, you know, maybe I've made some great misstep and I've been canceled in the midst of this, but we'll, you know, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. I think, uh, yeah, it'll be us that gets canceled. Yeah, I think you're the, anyway, out of everybody so on this about, call, yeah. you're the least likely. <laughs> yeah, I've got a special fucking bot set up. The the cancel alarm just goes off. All right, it's fucking Wednesday. Let's go. Yeah, no, I told you. You all knew. I mean, the public doesn't know, but I was flying back home this morning before this show, and we launched while I was in flight. So there's a there was a world in which I was not on social when we launched, and so there were many jokes about the lady who like flew up and said a bunch of like really offensive tweets and then by the time she landed she had been fired when her like yeah. phone service came back yeah. on so there were definitely some jokes about my my fate of uh of being in the air <laughs> when the the big announcement dropped so i'm i'm glad to have survived at least the first hour again we'll see how we'll see how it, um how it goes but i feel i feel good and i i've been honestly like really um i would probably say humbled again i my dictionary is limited today apparently but by um a lot of people in the community who have come out and you know put faith in what we're doing here both from seeing one team or seeing myself and you know giving us a chance at what we're doing here because they um they have some belief in in me or or us and so you know that's like uh yeah yeah get a little you know dusty honestly all right final questions guys uh before we do some viewer questions yeah none just um you know i listen my overall read on it and i said it to this the, to the guys uh sort of just before you um uh arrived you know, I I think overall, in terms of like the steps that have been taken for the League of Legends players and the Player Association, I think up until this point, it has been massively underwhelming. They haven't achieved a great deal, and honestly, the players even seemed sort of disinterested in setting and achieving any goals. So, I mean, at least for the commercial aspects, I think this is going to be good to kind of like rest back some of the power that sits with players that, uh, uh, actors rather that don't have the players interests. At heart. Um, it's very hard for me to sort of critique anything uh, about this and just sort of, I'll have to see how it kind of plays out in, in practice. But in general, like I think compared to some of the other attempts at associations and unionizations we've seen, at least this one is, laser focused on what it wants to achieve and the group it wants to achieve it for um be interested to see if we can get an equivalent in lec i don't don't know if that's possible or a goal or something anyone's thought about but other than that you know i wish you guys all the best and i hope that the players get uh get what they deserve <laughs> sounds almost like a threat at the end there but yeah, I'll take well, it in no, a one way or the other, right? One way or the other, always, always. I'll take it what they have coming to them. Yeah, exactly. 
Which, which way, actually, I think is is generally you know good. They should yeah, make yeah. more money. Yeah. That was really just final thoughts. He didn't really have a question. So I'll actually spin what he said into a question. Actually, maybe you could address that. If they were to attempt something like this in LEC, would the fact that like it's all those countries and team orgs are different? Would that do you think that would make it trickier than the LCS? Uh, I mean, if everybody's EU, like you, you have the governing body of the EU, which, which could potentially simplify matters. There, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer in America, and I'm definitely oh, yes. sure shit not one in it's Europe. So, yeah, um, but you know, they, they based out of Berlin, so if, again, being centrally located from a league standpoint is probably really advantageous. But uh, I, you know, I'm not an expert in European labor law, but you know, Europe's got a lot more progressive thinking labor laws to begin with. So your the European folks have some improved baselines from what um, players in the US have, especially around, you know, protections, contract guarantees and things of that nature. So um, we like I, you know, I have not had conversations with LEC folks who um, I've talked with players in other games, haven't talked to anybody else, LEC about interest. You know, I try and advise or support anybody who's trying to organize players in any game. So if anybody wants to talk, you know, open invitation, um, you know, you can always message me on Twitter and we can start a conversation or talk to one of our players. Um, but you know, I'm happy to provide any advice where anybody wants to try and take steps. And, you know, we're hopeful that this will be something that's really good for our players, really good for our league, and that it will help to paint a ro- you know, set a roadmap for other people to, to do similarly. I think it's easiest to, duplicate that roadmap that we create in North America because, you know, for obvious reasons, we have a very specific set of rules we're playing under, but you know, people around the world organize all the time and, and can and should, in our opinion. So, I have a question for Monty, actually. Since Monty has previously, didn't you say you did an interview with the guy who did his job before him? Okay, so it's even, I think, it's, is it on this channel or is it on Cloud9's, did you say? It's on Cloud9's channel. Right, okay. So my, the reason I have a question for you, Monty, is because as people will know, when, depending on what group you put humans in, they automatically organize in a different hierarchies, right? So even though if you put Monty into like a, like a, a Travis show, suddenly he's the villain and the skeptical one and he's got all these dark machinations. In this show, he becomes obviously like eternal fucking optimism of Monty's otherwise <laughs> jaded esports mind. So he always, he always somehow, right, finds the light and the, the, the guy does have the good intentions and I believe it can work and they've do. But my problem is this, Monty, if this is the guy who's the messiah, this is the one who's going to fix all. Didn't you say that about the last guy? Wasn't he? Or weren't all magic's pointing up for him? Wasn't he a cool guy? Didn't the convo you, seem to be going? So I want to ask you, how is this different? Monty, let me step in here. Let me step in here for you. Like, <laughs> you, you cannot look back at, at hot takes, okay? That is that is not fair. Like, only the newest, most recent hot take matters. So <laughs> okay. please do not answer this question, Monty. Okay. You don't, no, no, you don't need From the, the, the side official there. I think he actually also refed that fucking Bengals game, didn't he? But whatever. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. I, I think, I, I think uh, the difference with Hal is that uh, between Philip and Hal, and as you know, like I have a, a strong sense of uh, endemic people needing to lead the charge because they understand the issues right. better. And I think while Hal had experience coming in from uh, traditional sports, he didn't – I don't know if he was fully motivated to solve the issues of – the the LCS players, I think he had good intentions, but maybe lacked the confidence of the players or the the deep industry knowledge necessary to make them care about things that I think the current group has. It was also, I think, just Hal, basically. And now there's a bunch of other people, including like Snoopy is on the board now. So, I mean, he comes from a, pl- a place and Snoopy has always advocated for a player's union and has been a professional player himself. So there's a lot more people involved right now and there wasn't this partnership with one team to commercialize it and i feel honestly that you know hal just probably didn't know how to 
weave together all of the the different elements that needed to be worked on or have relationships with the players like Philip does from his time at at Evil Geniuses or the coaches. So I think it's a good thing that he's come on and that they've been able to bring these external partners on and bring on more people under the board as well. So I think it's to me, it looks a lot more serious than it did, whereas like it felt that Hal had good intentions, but maybe not the motivation or knowledge in order to execute all of the initiatives that are being executed now. I wondered if it was going to trigger you there, Richard, because if people don't know, Snoopy was the original person, even before Richard, who said, like, I'm going to make a player association. Now mm. I've retired because players really need it. By the way, no joke, yeah. this is in like 2015 or something mental, yeah. like seven, eight years ago. And if you don't know, this was one of the early examples where I learned that Richard Lewis doesn't miss because he did tell me behind the scenes that association will never occur. He will never be the leader of it. And this is all just, <laughs> essentially, once you've finished hearing him talk about it, you've, you've heard the end of it. That It's a pitch that he's that sort of guy. But Because if people don't, no, when Richard was trying to set up a CSGO one himself, yeah. it's just about, as, as we found out in this episode, it's about a thousand times more complicated than people think. Yeah, there was, there was a ton of legal stuff that stopped mine, um, you know, and we ha- and I was trying to do it with two divisions, so an American division and a European division, and immediately you just run into, on the American side, everything's a fucking, everything's just a corrupt nightmare, you know, so it's like, you know, you, you can't be this unless you pay this, and you do this, and you need a lawyer for that, and, it, you know, they've set up this system that's just so fucking convoluted, because um, I think Americans have, like, a weird view of, like, unionization compared to Europe, right? Um in Europe, it wasn't as sort of legally complicated, but then it was jurisdictionally complicated because, you know, uh, unlike in league, you know, everyone's based in a set like Berlin, essentially. But, you know, like in CS, everyone just plays where the fuck they play. So I got to take Danish stuff into consideration, you know, not as much German stuff, but a little bit of that with there would be like one team. And so, yeah, it was it was it was really complicated. And I knew, listen, I, I, I like Snoopy. Obviously, I've known him a long time. Yeah. And he's a good lad to have a drink with. Now that I'm a jaded old asshole, he is one of those guys. Like it just, I'm mystified at how he sort of keeps like blunder, like knowing the dude. Like it, it, I'm always mystified how he blunders into these roles and he gets to make these proclamations and it never quite happens. And yet he gets hired to do another thing and another thing and another thing. And I see tons of people like this in esports where it's like there is a committee of, uh, it's like the mafia of the mediocre, and they just sort of get to do incredible projects, but they never quite hit their goals. They never quite achieve what they want to do, and everyone pretends they did and then they get another job for an extra fucking digit on their salary and they just rinse and fucking repeat you know exactly nick, nick allen's fucking at it again oh, with an announcement all this upcomer bullshit like we, we we real have a competency crisis in this industry and until we fix that almost everything is suspect yeah i i, I want to defend snoop a and i'm not really uh, criticizing a straight for my friend nick allen as well here to be to be honest because I, I sometimes go back to that bitcoin tweet anytime i need like a it's sensible chuckle it's hilarious it is hilarious all. hilarious tweet and let's all give him credit for owning it consistently <laughs> and knowing he hasn't deleted it, it. He, 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 he eats it um but yeah, yeah. like you know i think as a part, like I regularly do this for a long time. I inherited that company from Alex Garfield, a legend in the space who built a juggernaut. And I inherited something that had a lot of warts and flaws and issues. And, and, you know, just keeping it alive was every breath I took, you know, like for, for five years was just keeping, keeping the thing alive and keeping it from turning into a corpse. And like, you know, that, like if you look like there's no one who's going to say the job I did at evil genius 
better than the job Alex Garfield did at Evil Geniuses. But I know from the inside that I had a lot of people who worked really hard with a lot of constraints that couldn't be seen publicly that made things happen. And I think, you know, it's it's not fair to judge someone who is putting it who is putting themselves out there in the front always of a of a thing and who maybe comes in with great intentions and works really hard and runs into unforeseen obstacles and moves on. Doesn't necessarily that they're not they're doing a bad job. The world is a fucking hard place and sometimes projects don't work out the way you want them to. But I would stand for either of those guys and the work that they put in. And, you know, they're both people who I rely on a great deal for for support and information. And, you know, I, I would be glad to go to war with either of them either day, any day. And I, I do so currently with um, with Snoopy on a regular basis. So it's, you know, I think that is what I would say is, you know, be critical of people and call us accountable when we fail. But also, you know, people got to work and hard work doesn't always mean success. Just an old bitter man. I lash out at everyone now, and I I, I, I appreciate. I, it. I, I like I like Snoopy, and and you know, listen, he's always had like a, a great mind. He's a great people person. I can see a lot of benefits to having him involved in a project like this. So um, you know, best of best of luck to him and everybody involved. What's full of shit with that union seven years ago though? Yeah, he was. Uh, he was. That's uh, him. Just keep uh, it score. That's all I'm saying. He was going to do it, and I ran into problems. Yeah. So you know, maybe I'm yeah. full of shit too. You know, yeah, Richard shit too. Yep, yep. Mm. All shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <you know>. uh, <laughs> Also, Thor, to your to your point about this iteration, this iteration of the union has actually done something, which is what we've what we're talking about today. I mm. never saw any announcement during the the Hal Biagas era of anything. So the fact that things are happening, I, I guess. What do you mean? That was that incredible thing about uh, streaming <laughs> in houses? What are you talking about? <laughs> they got the they got the W. They got allowed to stream in houses, and then decided they didn't. And all the players decided they didn't Thank want you. to. It's hilarious because fucking mental weaklings. <laughs> I know, it's hilarious. I know. Thank you for the credit. <laughs> so we've already we've already at least seen movement, and I think we'll probably, especially with the the one team on the commercial side, probably continue to see movement because they already have existing partners and relationships. So I imagine that the business will be coming, and then there, therefore, hopefully, it'll be self funded, and then we'll see additional movement. Yeah, movement. <laughs> Name of the game. That's what I got. All Just right, keep moving. <laughs> Uh, let's, let's wrap it up here, guys. We're going to, uh, very quickly change over to me, Richard and Thorne and take some viewer questions at the end of the episode before we finish up. Thank you, Philip, for coming on. It's been lovely to hear about this. Yeah, it's been fun to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me. Call me back anytime you need to hold my feet to the fire. We're back with viewer questions for grog coin holders go to the inside on esports discord where you can talk to people about esports and also go to the grog coin channel and figure out how to get involved we appreciate our grog coin holders and also insult them from time to time so first up what are your thoughts on dopamine fasting incidentally what are some reasonable expectations we should have for ourselves when it comes to balancing productivity and leisure in the modern day which is riddled with instant gratification what if esports pros implemented dopamine detox periodically? Would it improve their performance? I don't know if there's a way to know that, but Thorne, you probably have strong opinions on dopamine fasting. Oh, I think it's very important. I think if you look at, like, everyone keeps saying all these things, like, wow, technology's driving us crazy and overloading us, and then they have no solutions. Their solution is, like, go, please, Sony, make the phone less addictive. It's like, the one thing they're not going to do, dickhead, is be the, the fucking phone manufacturer ain't going to do it. The premise is, you're the one who picks up the phone, you're the one who opens it, you're the one who turns the TV on, you're the one who watches the Netflix. So, guess what? That's the point of entry, isn't it? So you could control that. So, basically, there's a premise of, like, fasting, and the same way as you fast from food to allow your body to heal itself, take care of things, 
things not be overloaded with digestion. If you don't do that in terms of your dopamine, essentially, if you're always looking at screens, being inundated with information, stuff like that, first of all, I think it causes problems. I think it makes people's mood worse. I think it probably makes you less productive. You think about all these stories you hear. This is riddled in esports, by the way. Try getting an esports pro to read a fucking book. You can put these guys on a nine-hour flight with a bunch of movies they've already seen, and they won't crack that fucking book open. And they'll tell you, it's just boring, isn't it? No, it isn't boring. These are some of the most fascinating things you can ever encounter. What that means is you have broken your brain to the extent you can't sit and just read and let the experience unfold, to which point it then becomes amazing. So in that scenario, like I think, I think. Look, I can only speak for myself. I think it's very important for myself. I'm trying to look into it more as I, as it is. I'm not that good at it myself. I I have the same things where I have a day where I'm on computers right until I go to sleep and it affects things. But I do think it's something that I personally consider quite important. And if you're an esports pro, bear in mind your entire job already is be on a computer all day. I would go out with your way if you can to find ways to disconnect, to have your own quiet aspect, to even have parts where you're literally just doing nothing. You're just giving yourself a total break and you're letting yourself become just a human again for a while. So here's here's the thing about modern technology. It is entirely developed to consume your attention and to provide dopamine to you as much as possible. So the problem is that now, obviously, these things are very enjoyable. And one of the advantages of living in the modern age is that you have access to a wealth of information and experiences Ability to travel, ability to meet people, uh, encounter new ideas that is unprecedented in the entire history of the human race. Now, this is an insane gift, but if you don't utilize it properly and you allow companies to control your attention constantly, you are sacrificing basically it's a it's a horrible sacrifice of your ability to actually use these tools. And so for me, my phone is always on do not disturb. So you you literally, my phone is silenced at all times. So I have to choose to look at my phone. It doesn't buzz. It doesn't do fucking anything. Um, so it can't just constantly keep me in a loop of looking at it. And I don't have social media notifications turned on. So I have to deliberately go to social media in order to have that experience. Now, there are other things you can do. Like Thorin said, you can read a book. You should be cultivating a longer attention span because that actually enables you to use your own brain and to engage with the world rather than just being reacting to a bombardment of information that is intentionally designed by psychologists and testing basically your the way your brain has evolved to interact with the world in order to keep you in an addictive loop. Uh, and I don't want that. Maybe you do. Maybe you want to live your entire existence not having an original thought and just being bombarded with information and pleasure. Sounds kind of lame to me. Uh, so I I think I really enjoy the modern world, but you just have to understand that you need to interact with it on your terms. Otherwise, it will just control you. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, you know, I totally agree with everything you've said. It's like, so initially when I first started hearing about dopamine fasting, right, I hate Silicon Valley fucking wellness trends. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I I just fucking loathe the bullshit, the pseudoscience, oh, yeah. you know, espoused by people who already think they're fucking God's gift to the fucking, you know, realm of the intellect uh, because, they, you know, they made a fucking, they made Facebook or, you know, whatever. In fact, you've unleashed a vile evil upon the world. It's nothing to be proud of. You should be ashamed. But, you know, the, but so whenever these wellness trends get, you know, 
spread into the mainstream and people adapt them, it's generally a very catchy term. Like, for example, dopamine fasting as a concept is nonsense. You can't fast from a naturally occurring substance in your brain. And people misunderstand. People think dopamine is like some substance that gets fucking, it's like cocaine or heroin. And, oh, no, 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 give me more of that, right? But it's just there all the time. What it does is it reinforces addictive behavior as it's sort of there when you get a pleasurable response from something you're already doing. So I agree with Monty in the sense the issue already lies within the fact we are allowing ourselves to be psychologically manipulated by big tech we're allowing ourselves to essentially engage in the name of social media and you know reach in the modern world to basically sign up to a skinner box that is doing things to us yep. that we're not really cognizant of Here's the and, <laughs> yeah and so look <laughs> is it a good idea to take a social media break irrespective of the science of dopamine fasting or anything like that um you know the the, the reality is of course i've never met anyone by the way who's took a break from social media and said that it was bad for them i've also <laughs> never met anyone who took a break from social media and said it wasn't difficult for the first day or two and not check their phone right like you know th there is you, there is people create patterns of behavior of needing to yes. check it and listen, it's happened to me too. I can't sit here and pretend like I'm some too. fucking guru. Like <laughs> I struggle. If a movie's two and a half hours, as many of them are these days, you know, I'll struggle to make it through all the way without checking Twitter. And I sort of rationalize it in my brain as going, hey, Richard, you know, like people are out to get you all the time. Have you been canceled? Check, check, check. What I'm really doing is I'm, I'm engaging with the Skinner box. I'm getting the dopamine response of, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm relieved I still have a career or, you know, a tweet's popping off or some content's being well received i also sort of and i remember talking about this with total biscuit when when he was still with us you know john said he had a sickness in terms of he would have to seek out if he was being spoken about name search see if I he was mean, being that criticized tracks with his behavior yeah yeah, yeah and, and, and i do the exact same even though he absolutely warned me against him don't you find it interesting how so many of the people who attempt to battle people like me and you and constantly advocate along the lines of mental health have absolutely zero sympathy for that topic oh I mean, this is the other thing as well. All these people who talk about mental health, they will absolutely happily dogpile someone until they commit suicide. And, and they will do it without thinking about it and then thoughts and prayers afterwards. I say this all the time, the, the, the ins you know, because I'm writing a book about this. The ins and I've, I've researched quite a lot of these topics. And, and so there's a real insidious thing that sort of started to inject itself, even pre-cancel culture or whatever label you want to apply to it. This, this notion that once everything enters into the attention economy, you by engaging with it have some form of license about whether or not those people can be allowed to function or engage with right. it it sort of goes back to reality television this concept of voting off it was a hugely popular thing we we made game shows around yeah, yeah. it you are the weakest link we did big brother we did you know all the endemol products that come out the idea that the public could engage and effectively remove someone um you know from the content right well what happens when everyday life is the content unfortunately what people want to do is i mean you could give them the benefit of the doubt and say they just want to shame you into living like a hermit but i think it's darker than that i think I people all, I, yeah. I, I i think a number of people actually would they 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 would welcome you killing yourself it's the ultimate wielding of power yeah. in a disproportional disproportionate power dynamic of somebody who doesn't have a following collectively you know coming at you with a mob yeah, yeah. to somebody who does have power and presence um it's really it's really metastasized into something malignant and awful um, but back to the uh, dopamine response stuff, um, I think, um, you know, for me, I, I, I feel like 
getting away from social media is like very very important especially if you have to constantly mire yourself in it like there's another term that's become popular lately like doom scrolling which is this idea that you can't stop looking at news feeds and we know from legal papers and complaints and fines that have been paid these they're manipulating you they are showing you one vision of the world they are showing you today's narrative and the longer you scroll and the longer you stay on the more fucking despondent you will become uh, in this you know they're doing it on purpose they want you hooked in they want you depressed they want you fearful and then you have to come back and come back and what do i do next you know you're essentially the modern equivalent of the 1950s motherfucker in the bunker with the radio on listening for fucking updates from the government as to how to live your yeah, life it used <laughs> to have it used to be really weird to be able to get horrible news updates in real time you used to have to just really hunt that down right now mm. it's just everywhere now it's just mm. fucking everywhere. Like you could wake up and read a newspaper article and get a summary about what was going on in the world and then live the rest of your life. Now you yeah, can yeah. spend your entire life in a perpetual news cycle. It's fucked up. Yeah. Also, one thing we people to live like doing, this. by the way, one thing people have to stop doing is pretend. Why does everyone pretend they're a hyper rational robot like fucking data from Star Trek Next Generation? No one is. Everyone's emotional, and almost everyone acts on instinct and emotion in most scenarios. And as far as I can tell, then uses the rational part of their brain to construct a plausible story as to why they actually did that because they're a hyper rational, yep. modern, educated, enlightened man. Because one of the reasons I hate that angle is if you ask a random pleb, the same ones that go, "Just stop looking," as it's that easy, by the way. Right, the same person would go, oh, well, in this scenario, like, why would anyone want to tune in and read bad news about themselves? You idiot. That's not the way the mind works. If I told yep. you right now, right, if you if you open this box in the corner of the room, it'll tell you what bad things going to happen in 30 minutes. Would you go, well, I don't want to know that. So every fucker in the room would have gone and opened <laughs> that box. Of course you would. That scientific yeah. experiment would work in outrageous amounts. Of, and you could even interview them before and ask them, would you rationally? They'd all say they wouldn't, of course. But we all know what human nature's like, though, isn't it? And that's exactly the levers they're pushing and pulling. And, and the next big thing that's going to come, because, you know, we're essentially talking about mental health almost through the lens of, like, depression and self-harm, essentially, um, and addiction, right, which are all, you know, uh, on the mental health spectrum. The next thing that's coming, because everybody is sort of... Uh, catering content to being like hyper dense but sh really short information dumps usually done at speed no more than a minute we're gonna have a ton of attention deficit disorder problems in future yep. generations Absolutely. you know youtube like the success of tiktok has led these other companies meta as it's fucking called now and uh youtube they're they're financially incentivizing people now to make shorter content yeah. we all already had an issue where people like so if i talk about a topic for 20 minutes 20 minutes is nothing 20 minutes isn't even a fucking starter at a restaurant right but the kids go mate you could have you could have summed that up in five minutes well now what you're starting to see is the motherfuckers that sum it up in five minutes the jake luckies of the world that basically just read a tweet and that's and and for some reason that's like mad engaging content for you no additional context no additional expertise um now they go get to the point jake lucky and so you're gonna have an influencer 
that makes Jake Lucky look like some verbose fucking mega mind. And that's a timeline I, I will not engage with. I will not fucking engage with that whatsoever. But it is coming. You are, and, and the kids are not going to be able to focus for a one-hour class or anything else because all the other content they consume in their lives is 60 seconds information well, dumped. Well, Richard, the way I look at it is there's just more real world for me at that point in time. The more people check into the metaverse, the more I just go outside and there's nobody else there. Boomers rise awesome. up. It's fucking awesome. Boomers dude. rise up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 just people who actually have attention spans. Like, would I rather go to a national park with a bunch of people or with a few people while everyone else is just like living in a digital world? I I'll take the fewer people. I don't care if I'm the only one living in the real world. You know, everyone else could be in the Matrix. Whatever. Unf it makes my experience Unfortunately, better. it will be a scorched, resourceless wasteland. <laughs> so, but, but, <laughs> just in LA. Evening strolls <laughs> oh, yeah, true. He I'll already lives in LA. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, already yeah. lives in a city that people try to convince you we should make the mecca of esports. They can't even keep the motherfucking power of the internet on all the time. They can't <laughs> yeah. even do step one. Of having a scene. So partly so, because it shouldn't be their land and they did see it and probably there are ghosts fucking back of all time. <laughs> whatever whatever the reason. What I mean, I think like I think the the answer to this question, guys, is like you know, first off, dopamine detox is just bullshit for like develop your attention span and just do normal human shit. Remember that ninety nine point nine nine percent of human existence didn't have the internet, so like maybe mm. you shouldn't be on the internet all the time, like Read a book, talk to somebody for a few hours, go camping, walk, go on a fucking hike. It's like, why do we have to invent these weird words for things of, of how to live normally? And here's a, here's a rule of existence for you guys that isn't always true, but is generally true. The things that will make you happy for low amounts of money are the things that are not going to be very profitable to people most of the time, and they're not going to constantly bother you for your attention. If something is bothering you for it, uh, your attention, whether it's a notification on your phone or an advertisement for processed food, the broccoli lobby doesn't have money to do advertisements because it's not very profitable. It is profitable, but not very profitable for them to sell broccoli to you. If, you know, going to a national park is very inexpensive, but they're not going to advertise that to you because they don't have to, guys. Reading a book, you can just go to a library. And guess what? It's fucking free. You can download books for free online now because any book written before what, like 1925 right now, is actually free. That's the majority of classic literature in the world, in the history of the world, is free for you. So it's not going to be advertised to you. It's not going to be a notification on your phone. It's not going to be presented to you and to try and take your attention away. Those are the things to spend your attention and to usually like consume fresh produce, you know, fresh food. It's it's not it's not very hard guys. If if you're seeing it, there's an ulterior motive always, okay? So just ignore. Uh, you on. know, is any of classical literature written by the Nelk boys? You know? I so, don't know what that is. <laughs> you don't want like it. a big podcast. <laughs> yeah. Full send, full send. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's like not that hard. Just, you know, if, if somebody's trying to if there is an entity that is trying to vie for your attention, just consume it in limited quantities. Not saying don't enjoy it. Absolutely. I love playing video games. You know, sometimes I eat junk food. It's good. It's delicious. But just recognize that it's probably not good for you to do all the time. 
I think the best example of that, by the way, was when I was a boy, if you went to the library, because this is the 90s when the internet just come out. Famously, if you didn't have home internet access, that was one of the most famous places you could get, sometimes even free internet access. But if you ever went in, essentially, Monty, to a building that was designed for people to go in and read books, the only people on those computers, aside from, like, 65-year-olds, were just, like, delinquent kids looking up how to make bombs and stuff. Like, it was so... (laughs) Rather than go read all those amazing books and literature, you know, like, it was, like, the ultimate metaphor for what was coming really <laughs> jolly roger cookbook mate classic, classic. i was there i was there yeah. reading it bam, bam, i would just suggest cool. i would say don't make half the stuff though half it does look booby trapped that probably will blow your hand off <laughs> yeah don't you know. don't do that <laughs> yeah uh all right you're well known for calling out check stealers who is the biggest check stealing player in esports now oh, it's it's player. he said player so we can't <laughs> say call him mcneil so that's off his table immediately so i mean listen Essatag's got to be up there, surely, Richard. That Cloud9 contract. Look, to be fair, it was cancelled pretty early, but fuck it all. If people don't know, genuinely, like Essatag was making more in salary than I think like Simple makes now. Like that was real. So listen, it's not like Essatag's a bad player. Essentially, Essatag though is like your worst player. So the idea your worst player and you're not even the best team made more than the best player in the world. There's something a bit off when that's happening. Yeah, it's it's a real hard one because it sort of is all relative, isn't it? So it's like yeah, who yeah. is definitively the biggest? Um, I mean, you know, I don't want to see two when he came back. That's gonna yeah. be right up there. That's I mean, fucking right up there. Just any check, <laughs> a black Most check. Of them he's been, yeah, true. Yeah, a check with like just zeros on it. Fuck, it would have been bad. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm, it's sort of very hard to say because as well, a lot of the salaries are like really like opaque. Um, oh, and also, you know, I mean. Would it even be CSGO? I feel it has to be League of Legends because they make so much money. It's got to be some LCS player then, hasn't it? Because yeah. I mean, they're the ones that have the bonkers salaries. So, like, who would it be right now? I mean, someone in the chat, I mean, which, which should have this would immediately spring to my mind as well. That sword art deal kind of felt... Oh, that was outrageous, <laughs> yeah. Like, outrageous. They're, they're especially be- especially because they basically just cancelled his second or third year and they just gave him the money. Like, that made it even more yeah. insane. Like, he was never worth what he was originally signed for or paid. And then on top of it, they just gave him the bag anyway and said, please leave so we can make worse decisions. I mean, I think I think Huni, depending on the year, the thing is Huni has not been stealing checks some years. He's actually yeah, been yeah. good. The the year he was on EG and was like playing on Academy yeah. and actually he was just he, he was running it, it. He was Absolutely. terrible in Academy on yeah. EG guys. Like he did not give a fuck. He was really bad. He was on some like Kenny Powers shit put out like, here. Like like he's literally being paid millions. He comes to the Academy squad. He's not even trying. And he's just going like, lol, who gives a fuck? He's running yeah. down. Like, yeah. you know, listen, that would be hilarious if it was indeed a comedy show with a conceit that you're an arsehole. But you're just a real life arsehole now. And this is real life foodie. This isn't there's no cameras rolling, mate. You're just being a dickhead now. What are you doing? Yeah, so I, I there have been instances of him not obviously like being a valuable player too. So I don't think that's fair to put him in that category because it's not like he was always yeah. or ha- you know I don't even think he's necessarily stealing checks now. He's one of the better players on his roster. It's not his fault the roster fucking sucks. He's also an um, NA resident now, so it doesn't doesn't count as much for my money. He is he is more valuable logically than he was in the past because he's an NA player. Mm. Yep. All you right. Know? Next, does Kerrigan need to win a major before being the goat IGL in CS:GO? The problem I have with that goes like this. I've already gotten gotten all of you to say that Simple was the goat when he didn't win a major. So how can you then turn around and go, but for IGLs though, like, which is it, guys? 
The problem I have is this. This is why I knew Simple would break everyone's fucking brain in CSGO. Because I knew when he looked at the eye test, like, dude, it, it, they won't be able to deny it if he keeps doing it for like five years. And he has, by the way, he just kept doing it for like four or five years. So the premise I would say is similar with Carrigan. It's like, look, it would be easy to justify that he could be in that conversation if he wins a major. Of course, it's the biggest tournament. But I would say if you already look at the body of work, you can put him in the conversation and make like your own case for him. It's just, would he be number one? That's more the issue to me. I think he's already in the convo. It's like, who the fuck else is? You can't already be glad. There has to be some competitors. No, I mean, listen, I, I, I think uh, that you don't need to win a major to be the the go IGL, but in the position Carrigan's in, he needs to win a major to leapfrog. The people who have won majors, multiple That's pretty majors. much the consensus. Yeah, I mean, Glaive, obviously. Fallen, obviously. Uh, you, do you agree with that, though? For me, well, for, I don't know if Fallen was ever better than Carrigan. I don't give a fuck. Guess what? Carrigan didn't always have the same players he did. Like, I think Fallen's a fucking whack uh, idea. Like, two years he was good at that shit. I mean, I, I, I think that's kind of a little bit, like, revisionist because of where he's kind of got to now. My opinion on Fallen is, at the time, you have to remember, when he when he assembled that original Brazilian team, he made hard cuts. He cut players okay. with big names. He actively scouted Cold Zero himself, who was a no-namer when he came into that team. Um, well, and to be fair, so, he's, not a, he's, not, he's not up for best GM of all time, right? They're sure, but, but, but I mean, <laughs> listen, also you have to understand that, like, I mean, for example, uh, you know, one of Carrigan's great strengths is working with, you know, getting, getting unbelievable value out of players oh. that shouldn't really provide you with that value and generally don't provide that value for anyone else in their career. Yeah, that's true. And, and Fallen's done the same. So, um, for me, when they were the best team in the world for the two years, uh, they were, I mean, you can make an argument to say they weren't very tactically dense. I don't agree with that, but you could make that argument because what they were just blowing people away in the first year, like they were dominant. I think they had, was it three of the top five players in the world? It was like called, it was like fallen, uh, yeah. yeah, called zero fallen and fur. So, I mean, that's just... like top six or top eight or something. Which is an embarrassment of riches. Do you need great tactics at that point? But I definitely think Fallen's in the conversation for... for, I thought you were saying you had him above Carrigan, though. Oh, well, yeah, actually, maybe. I don't know. It's like, I could go back and forth on that one. I don't don't know where Pronax is in the whole conversation either. That's another question, right? Guy won three. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I, I, I would... I up today right now having a conversation uh and i, I could change tomorrow because yeah, obviously yeah. it's a it's, it's a lot of criteria i would have all three of those above carrigan for goat discussion personal okay i will say in general and he, he does apply this equally to sports richard does also believe that like rings are a baseline you have to sort of hit to be the yeah best ever it's ever so, not yeah. always not always but i but i, I feel if you go your entire career without winning one, what that suggests, there has to be some exceptional circumstances. There has well, to be an exceptional it, to justify it, you know? I think it depends on the sport. In a sport like CSGO where there's only five players, meaning that a player can have a significant impact on the outcome mm. of a match, or like basketball, it makes sense. I think in the NFL, when you have like 53 players, it becomes... Yeah, but then again, it's 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 kind of relative, thing, right? You've, you've missed on that one because you have to realize yeah. which does have Tom Brady as the goal. So he, he would disagree with oh, that. Oh, no. Oh, Richard. Absolutely, yeah, of course. I, I, I don't even see the argument personally oh my, anymore. No. There you go. <laughs> I, I, I literally don't. I, just for quarterbacks, obviously, if you want to have a conversation about right. uh, mo- most valuable no. football player of all time. 
yeah. you know, we can do that. But in quarterbacks, I don't even think it's a discussion. I Jeez. do not even think it's a discussion. I know everyone jokes off Aaron Rodgers, okay. but listen, I say it all the time. In terms of technical ability, Rodgers, sure. But in terms of getting shit done, you, you can't even make an argument for it anymore. Every year, there's an excuse. This time, it was the special teams. Sure, he's right, but, it, but you what? Brady's never been hampered at any point in his career. He's won a fucking Super Bowl with the Bucks. That destroys the myth. The, no, he went to the stacked Bucks roster, dude. Don't say it's stacked, man. Their O-line is dog shit. <laughs> no, it is this year. <laughs> but I, the first year, I think it was a lot better. <laughs> he had yeah. maybe the best receiving core in the NFL and an insane defense on that team. They had a good defense. I, I definitely wouldn't say it was insane. I'd love to see the numbers Top from five that defense. Super Bowl season. <laughs> but, but, you know, like Rodgers at various points in time has had like good squads at the Packers. You can't say that. You, you can't say he didn't. Maybe a couple, maybe. Well, when he, particularly when he first came in. So listen, all I'm saying is like Nobody I think Rodgers is, is, he's not elite. I just don't think he's the greatest of all time. That's all. Uh, well, you know, history will not be kind to that view. <laughs> You know, the, 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 the plebs you know, love that view. I just disagree. Anyway, <laughs> thoughts on the Phantom Lord lawsuit seems like the least impactful outcome. Yeah, uh, uh, as in yeah. because it was sort of like the drama just went away and he sort of like won, but in a very like... He won like 25 grand or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It didn't I think it's like... I don't really care about that. Yeah. Case, but... I actually don't know what's happened since that came out or if Nothing. anything has happened. I mean, so look, right. Basically, uh, what Phantom Lord did uh, wasn't even, you know, him and his girlfriend, public, you know, who pretended not be his girlfriend for a while uh, during the case, um, to avoid criticism, I suppose, it was, uh, you know, basically they said it proved that they were innocent of all the things they were accused of. It absolutely didn't. In fact, quite the opposite. The sticking point and why Phantom Law was able to win was essentially on the technicality that Twitch, when they terminated his contract, didn't follow their own procedures and had to give him notice and a sort of right to reply to the allegations they didn't do that and as a result he was awarded damages to the tune of the, you know one month which was what their process said they had to do they had to give him right. a, a month to remedy the situation essentially and so they went through and they he had to submit his earnings um you know as part of that which he i believe he had sealed away um and so he got to essentially show that, and they and the jury agreed that you know the twenty five thousand or whatever it was was worth it. By the way, he paid much much more than that over the course of this case, which you know Gosh, it yeah. started it started in something like fucking twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen or something. It went on for a long long time, but you know when you make millions doing what he did, and already sort of having a lot of money to begin with. And also being in a relationship with someone who was independently wealthy, yes, th these things are not a factor. You can absolutely do it. And I guess the optics of being able to say I beat Twitch in court is is positive, but not on any of the material wrongdoings he actually did, none of which was disputed. In fact, the judge in the sort of closing statements absolutely sort of said i think phantom lord lied during the trial you know i think uh, you know i don't think it was reasonable you know he was saying he'd never even looked at tos and didn't know what tos was at one yeah. point and then somebody submitted it'd been submitted into evidence a video of him reading tos on his fucking stream <laughs> <laughs> so the judge was like this guy is definitely lied right so i mean there was loads of like funny little moments like that but in terms of like what it actually um 
what the cakes actually provided to the wider Twitch community. What Phantom Lord really wanted was to be allowed back on the platform. Yes. That was never going to be enforceable, um, you know, because of all the sort of Section 230 protocols and everything else uh, that, we, that, that are in America. And, um, you know, it, it changed nothing for him, and it certainly changed nothing for Twitch. So, yeah, I agree. One of the least impactful legal cases. I mean, had, had, they, had it gone another way and had there hadn't been irrefutable evidence of the stuff that, like, I reported and everything else, who knows? But, yeah, it just, it just wasn't very impactful. Uh, the Tfue phase one, had it actually gone to court, would have been much, much more significant. Um, but they settled, so. Uh, something lighter to finish the day. What is something that made you happy today? Today. Today. <laughs> Richard's had a well, terrible day. <laughs> they're all terrible. <laughs> That's the British condition, though. That's the British well, condition. I mean, I don't know. Duncan, anything good happen to you today? I mean, I just enjoy seeing dogs having the sunshine on me, blocking people. <laughs> I'm easy. I just like the small things in life. Yeah. Yeah. Punishing uh, people to Thorin's Purgatory. Check it out. Look it up on Twitter. Y'all uh, know you want to follow it. And by the way, there's a low-key thing I never knew I'd actually enjoy, Monty. One thing that's a very simple thing, but it is enjoyable, is actually on when I log in, going and on the Thorin account, clicking followers on, Thor, on Thorin's Purgatory, and then seeing all the accounts that are blocked that have started following it. Oh, I love Oh. Because <laughs> oh. remember, they all talk, Richard knows this, they all, all the talk such a good game when they get blocked. As in, basically, if no one knows, it's basically, it's, it's the blue checkmark equivalent of back in the day, famously, if you're in a bar with the lads, and someone goes, go on then, you keep looking at it, go and bloody ask her out. If they go and ask her out, right, and then she, she just rejects them, they always come back and they go, she was a bloody lesbian anyway. She, mm -hmm. And the joke is because they're rejected, they have to pretend they didn't care anyway. But the, as you see here, actions always speak louder than words. You still click that follow button, didn't you, motherfucker? And I intentionally made that Twitter account. So just the act of clicking follow is the most humiliating experience possible for following. So enjoy. You have now suffered the way you should. Not yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. This was fun, I guess. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. I don't know. Uh, good things. Good things don't happen to me. I, the the best part of my day is when I start drinking. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like, you know. I will say by the way, in doing content, one thing I do take a perverse amount of pleasure in is when I realise that the other person thinks they've made like an ironclad point, but really all they've done is just say that they might do that. And it's like, well, actually, there's no real way of you know. You haven't really proven anything. That you haven't done anything. You just said something nice, and then they have to realize it. Oh shit! Does this spell not work around it? Fuck! Do we have to actually have reasons and shit? I, I love that bit. I love it because it's just esports in a nutshell. All the idiots just go, but he answered you. He said that they were going to fix everything. Like you fucking morons. You you just sit down and pipe down in the back peanut gallery. We'll do the fucking hard questions. There's another uh, thing I enjoy every day: berating fans and people I believe to be below me. Yeah, it, it's it's earlier the day for me because I'm on the west coast of the United States. So, but my day's been pretty good. I enjoyed doing Four Horsemen today with you guys, and I like the fact that it wasn't some epic bullshit we had to deal with, but actually something kind of seemingly positive. So that made me happier than a lot of the the other Four Horsemen shows that we do, where we have to get angry and shit. Uh, even though being angry is something I enjoy too, I'll be honest. 
<laughs> but yeah. uh, righteous anger is genuinely enjoyable. Righteous <laughs> indignation is a wonderful oh, feeling. And, you know, maybe, maybe maybe we do uh, maybe we do an angry episode of the Four Horsemen soon about the upcomer bullshit that's oh, man, you don't everywhere. even know. Yeah, oh, that's really angry one. <laughs> but, but fucking buffet boys, you have to understand that. There's that, so much we could go with that. Has to be addressed on the show. Yes. Like yeah. it, it, it cannot yeah. be ignored. Uh, so look for that next week. Yeah, perhaps yeah. we'll uh, we'll figure out a time that will work. Um, in the meantime, uh, I don't know. Like I uh, I got up this morning and I got to read books to my son, who's almost two, and. He just loves sitting on my lap and reading books. Probably read like two two hours of books to him every day. He really jo- enjoys books. So he hopefully... his kid can read books. Fucking Bjorks and actually does read books. That's not fair. <laughs> Double lift. Even Monty's fucking kid reads books, mate. Get off that fucking anime and start learning your bonehead. Just because you got loads of crypto, you can lose. They have to do something more in your life to have crypto, mate. I mean, and just go TSM sucks now. Like you're the cocksucker that propped him up for half a decade. Why you say that to me now? Like I'm supposed to be on your side. I mean, he reminds me. It's like stop. You know, he doesn't say it, but it's like when I'm looking at Twitter, he'll just come to me with a book and just throw it at me and sit in my lap and force me to get off social media. So he's actually helping with the dopamine fasting and to form actual human relationships with people and enjoy reading. Okay. There you go. So as your dopamine fasting, just get a kid and pay attention to it. <laughs> All right, then I'll I'll go fucking father a love child, Monty. Great advice. You Cheers. can you can you can adopt, Richard. There you go. Uh, mm. So uh, I guess we'll we'll end the episode there. Look out for the upcomer episode soon. Got to find uh, got to find a guest for that. But definitely a lot to unpack with the esports media business and it being a consistent shit show. Uh, there's, there's tons to get mad about there, guys. The fact that business people keep running the wrong business models in this industry, uh, signing up all this talent and then firing them. Uh, the only effective models that we've seen so far result in stealing other people who actually create contents content and then editing it together on your own fucking channel, which is some big bullshit. Uh, so lots, lots to get mad about there, but we'll figure out a time to do that episode separately. Mm. Till then, esports to Linda Est. Goodbye. <laughs>